Welcome to the In Search For More podcast, where guests join me in my search for more, more from myself and more from life. I'm your host, Ellie Nash. In this episode of the In Search Of More podcast, I sit down with Robbie Simon Jacobson and Divi Bogart. This conversation is a follow-up to the conversation I had. Apply within, can mental health challenges, can Hasidic philosophy be applied to mental health challenges? With Robert Jacobson alone, I thought it would be helpful to bring a mental health professional on board for our follow-up conversation, which we do here. And uh, once again, the conversation took somewhat of an unexpected turn. And uh, far-ranging conversation, touched on a lot of different topics, personal experiences, etc. And I hope that uh, you get something meaningful out of it. Somewhat of a long conversation, about three hours, but hey, we got double speed for the times I'm not talking super fast. See you on the other side. Uh, so for those who joined us for our last program, Apply Within, Coping with Mental Health Challenges Through the Lens of Hasidic Philosophy, welcome back. And for those joining us for the first time, Two weeks ago, Robert Jacobson and I sat down together to explore what I felt was a disconnect and that I always heard that Hasidus has all the answers for all problems. Tanya was an offering that was meant to replace in some way what the uh, Alter Rebbe offered his students at the time, an answer for all of their problems that they're dealing with. But when confronted with my own mental health challenges, I did not open a Maimar Hasidus. You know, I didn't open a book of Hasidic text. So that disconnect I attempted to reconciling the conversation with Robert Jacobson a couple of weeks ago. The full recording of that conversation is either on Robert Jacobson's YouTube channel, or you can find it on my podcast, In Search of More, available wherever you listen to podcasts. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, you can hear the whole conversation. But in summary, what I took from the conversation were two things. A Hasidic philosophy is not a cure for trauma. So it's not, if someone has trauma, go to a mental health professional and work with them, go to a psychologist and, and work it out. What Hasidic philosophy is, is a way of life. And I'm summarizing a two and a half hour conversation that when practiced is one of the most powerful self-development programs that improves us overall, including reducing or even healing trauma. An example I thought of after the fact is if someone had a bad kidney, they wouldn't go to a fitness instructor to heal their kidney, but it wouldn't be a stretch for a fitness instructor to tell someone, hey, if you have a bad kidney, you should work with me. And if you work with me, you're less likely to have kidney problems. Not guaranteed to eliminate it entirely, but focusing on one's overall health also helps in the specifics. And Robert Jacobson went into a lot of detail on how Hasidic philosophy, it's not a book that one reads, it's a, it's a way of life that includes um, much more than just learning a text. I believe you called it a song right, of the song that encapsulates or goes with the Hasidic teachings. And part of that song, the learnings, but also the gatherings, the community, the like-minded people, mentors, friendships, Jewish law, all these woven together to create a lifestyle that Robert Jacobson spoke, out, spoke about. I think, I think you referenced in Lubavitch, it was this, like the city of love, right, where there was a whole city of people who, who lived in this way, which in those environments, one is less likely to encounter mental health challenges. And when they do, they have a city of people well-suited to help them cope with it. Did I capture that correctly, Robert Dickinson? Yeah, there's been a lot to say, but uh, that's good, yeah. Yeah, we do have the whole podcast. Now, during that conversation, uh, Divi Bogart, also known as Devorah Common, depending if uh, on the professional side, it's Devorah Common, more personal, it's Divi Bogart. So we'll go with Divi Bogart. 
And uh, she was, she's someone I had met through our Remy Garari. He and I were also on a podcast together a couple of months back. And uh, she was chiming in during the course of the conversation in the chat section, not the Q&A, but I was able to catch enough of it to think that it would be worthwhile for the three of us to have a conversation. The truth of the matter is that I want to sit back as I said most of what I'm um, going to say. I wanted to sit back and uh, hear a conversation more between the two. Before I, before I go to that, Rabbi Jacobson, last time we spoke a little bit about Surfside before we jumped in, do you want to speak a little bit about Rabbi Khan before we jump in? Yeah, I'm very saddened this evening by the news of the loss of a great legend, legendary giant of our time. Name was Rabbi Khan, just passed away in the last few hours, age 91. He was a mentor of mine, a teacher of mine, but above all, he was, a, he was the main chayzer um, who I worked closely with for many years. Uh, he arrived in America in 1950 and became the main uh, oral scribe of memorizing the Rebbe's teachings and then documenting it and publishing, as well as being a mentor and a mashpia to many thousands and thousands. He's also an author of a uh, magnum opus called Sefer Erchim, Encyclopedia on Hasidus a true master of Hasidus and especially in explaining it. And I, on a personal note, want to acknowledge that, but I also felt to honor him. You know, we're talk, talking about Hasidic philosophy. We're talking about Hasidic psychology, applying it all and making it practical in our modern times. So uh, it's, good to, it's good to honor him as he's passed on tonight, this evening, the 6th of, of Rabbi El Khan a dear uh, uh, mentor and colleague and uh, friend as well. Worked very closely with him for many years, side by side in preparing the Rebbe's talks for publication. So I'm both saddened, but also empowered because I learned much from this man. And uh, I feel we can, uh, a lot of what we'll talk about is in some way an honor and tribute to him as well. Big shoes to fill and I may be a, a good advocate for us down here. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you're speaking about being a chayzer and remembering the Rebbe's teachings and giving it over. So it's a good way of segueing into kind of what the question of tonight is, really. How do Hasidic and Hasidus and Hasidic philosophy and modern psychotherapy meet? You know, memorizing and saying over teachings is something that's in our world rather unique, right? Today, everybody has everything at their fingertips on their phones. Who needs to remember anything? But we were raised, we memorized words of Tyra at, a, you know, whatever opportunity we had. And it just speaks to how much there is that we still don't know about the human mind, right? We don't know what the impact of memorization is on our cognitive capacity, but it could be huge. So when we ask this question of what role does Hasidic philosophy play in healing the mind, that's a very general question. And the answer is that it must be huge because the mind is really the seat of the soul. Uh, but the more specific question about psychotherapy requires us to remember that psychotherapy is a specific modality for working with the human mind. So we can certainly explore where chassadus and psychotherapy meet, but we're also kind of keeping in mind in what way does chassadus empower us to heal the mind more generally. Divi, yeah. uh, can, you, can you give a little bit of... Um... 
your work background, day-to-day, the kind of people you work with, the, ch- the challenges you're dealing with? Uh, so I'm a psychiatric nurse practitioner. I also practice psychotherapy. I'm primarily psychodynamically trained, and I work with high-risk uh, adolescents. Most of them are in the female, uh, ca- a female campus, um, and they're at a residential level of care, meaning they are benefiting from 24-7 supervision, so they haven't been able to be successful at home outpatient. And most of them are struggling with mood disorders uh, and a combination of self-harm, suicidality, eating disorders. Is there any age range that you specialize in? Uh, they're most, they're teenagers up to young 20s. And I don't, I don't want, uh, I'll just say that in this population, we might think, you know, where does Hasidus come in, right? Because this is such a high risk population. But I will say that they have brought me back to Hasidus in the sense that there were a number of years when I really wasn't learning very much. And when I started to work with this population, I really felt like my tools were not meeting their needs. And what struck me was the significance of the, their attachment wounds. So they just did not have the sense that they could be loved or cared for. And no matter what you said to them, you really couldn't shake that because it was sort of a neglect at their core. And I've thought of self-harm that way in the context of working with them, where it wasn't that they were harming themselves. It was this other version of themselves that they had so deeply internalized that they were harming. And so we have some understanding of the role that an attachment ruptures. So I'm talking about an attachment rupture, usually in early childhood. It doesn't have to be with the mother, but it's usually some major disruption to the child feeling loved and being able to develop properly. So we may know a lot about attachment ruptures and try to work with it, but we really don't understand, well, how do we form a new attachment in an older person? And this question comes up in adults too. Mm -hmm. So you're dealing with someone who's struggling with self-harm, suicidality, eating disorder. I mean, some of the most severe stuff planet and in a very extreme um, extreme case to the point that they need 24-7 supervision. It, the, what, what you're talking about, the attachments and not feeling love, is that a given? Meaning is that, is that understood, is that accepted uniformly that someone who's struggling with that did not feel love as a child and this is in reaction to that? So you really can't ever generalize. Like each human being is so unique. But I will quote Marsha Linehan, who is a famous psychotherapist who developed DBT, dialectical behavioral therapy, which is probably of the most popular forms of psychotherapy today. And her understanding of some of these conditions was um, the presence of a biological vulnerability to mood instability plus an invalidating environment. So that's where there's almost always some deep invalidation. So meaning you have a person who might be born with a tendency toward being unstable, their moods are unstable, or they get anxious very easily, or they're very reactive. So that's their predisposition. But then you put them in an environment that feels unsafe or invalidating. And that combination can, but does not always produce some of these conditions. Right. That's why you can have two children in the same household who experience relatively the same thing. One of them is in your care and one of them is not. Right. But if you don't mind, Divi, can you go back to, okay, so we understand the attachment rupture and how did Hasidus help you 
so-called creates a new level of healthy attachment as an adult. You're in the middle of that, right? Right. So, you know, there's this um, saying in Hasidus, Rabbi Jacobson, you could help me with the specifics, but, you know, we want to dive in like like a, like a child, right, to our parent, like that the end goal of learning Hasidus is to be able to Davin and connect Hashem with the simplicity of a child, which seems like a very simple statement, but we all understand that that's deeply profound. So the work of Hasidus in cultivating a true felt connection to Hashem is the creation of an attachment system. So in your experience, you found that to be superior to any other alternative? So I don't use that directly with my patients because, you know, it's not, uh, I'm not talking with them about God, you know, I'm not talking, but I, I use that to inform my work with them. So I think in some ways, the role of psychotherapy is to create a space where people can cultivate a connection to something bigger than themselves. That is the attachment system, right? It's this connection to something that we can kind of sit in and be held in as adults, right? When we're babies, it's very easy to find that attachment system, right? We're at our mother's breast and we're perfectly content. But as adults, we all struggle with finding that attachment system because we've outgrown the, and, and this was very comforting to me to understand and working with my patients that so many of them are so stuck in what they didn't get from their parents. And while that is very painful, we all outgrow our parents' love. And the work of being human is finding a connection that's bigger than that. Absolutely. You know, I'll just, uh, I'll just embellish on that and go further. Um, I think we spoke about Ellie last time when we, the, our last session about, I believe I talked about psychological hypothermia, the idea of uh, that, that inner child, that inner innocence that may have been hurt, or as we just uh, heard, the attachment rupture. But at some point, the goal is to reconnect with that inner child, with that inner innocence, to use a little more Hasidic or Kabbalistic terminology, that there are two states of consciousness. There's the pre-tree of knowledge state of consciousness, and there's the post-tree of knowledge. Now, when Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden ate from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, they became self-conscious. Essentially, their consciousness somewhat became severed. Maybe that's a harsh word. We'll say some dissonance from its purpose. It's like who you are and what you do becomes somewhat disconnected, like body and soul. And, the, and therefore, a new state of a new duality um, entered into human consciousness. And the goal is to correct, to repair that rupture, repair that schism by reconnecting to love of another human being. But ultimately, as the, as the Torah puts it, the Bible puts it, the love of another is really the love of God, because the human being was created in the divine image. So it's exactly that. Love teaches you to connect to something greater than yourself, greater than your own self-interest self, uh, and self-ego uh, and, and so on. And ultimately, it's a reflection of a higher connection. And those that are able to really connect to that which is beyond themselves, starting with the human, but then extending it to something truly transcendent, what we would call divine, um, is the, the real formula for true healing. And this is really universal. I wouldn't even preach this as a religious uh, concept. It's the idea, even in the 12 steps, they talk about surrendering to a higher power or different terms that we use and forms that we use. But it's absolutely correct. I think I mentioned that Ava, love, 
is the same gematria, the same numerical configuration as echad, as attachment, as unity. So the question is, are you attached to something that is healthy or you're not attached? Or are you attached to something that's healthy and you connect and unite with it? That unity is critical in a seamlessness of a healthy human being. And of course, the fragmentation that can, that can um, so often uh, sh uh, shatter or splinter or create that uh, dissonance that people who are dealing with different challenges that were mentioned and many others. I mean, how would this show up in a session, right? Meaning if, if, if a client is sitting with you and you're saying that they don't have a healthy attachment, they, they can't get it with their parents now because they're an adult, they've outgrown it. So it's going to need to be with a, I guess, a higher power, spirituality, God, et cetera. How do you, how do you introduce that in a, in a session? So you're going to keep us practical. Uh, I, I, it would inform my work with the patient. I'll try to make that practical. So for, as an example, oftentimes a person may uh, get very reactive or self-harm. And please keep in mind, that I'm not generalizing. This may be an example with one client, and most of these examples have happened at least once in reality. You know, when you ask them, I, you know, I heard you were struggling, what was going on? And they say, I have no idea, right? I just got so upset and I had, not, I had no other tools, right? So from an attachment framework, when you understand that essentially the disconnection is kind of at the core, if you work hard and trace back with the client, you will almost always find an event that created disconnection. And maybe that didn't cause the self-harm, but it certainly makes it more likely. Well, so it could an be- example of that event? Okay. Yeah, so maybe they had a family session and you know the mother kind of ignored them in the middle of the session, or a peer in the classroom poked fun at them, um, or they were supposed to have a session with a therapist and the therapist was sick and didn't show up. Um, and when you have a deep appreciation of what the struggle of disconnection means, you see the whole situation differently. And also you're working with them to actively cultivate the capacity to connect. That's a core focus of the treatment. That starts with your connection with the client. So that means you're doing everything possible to cultivate a very authentic connection with you in the hopes that that will give them the belief in themselves that they can connect with others. Because like Rabbi Jacobson said, it's not a religious idea, right? If we connect with another human being, we're one step closer to creating an, a, a network of connection. Yeah, absolutely. Um, if I wait, can weigh in, unless Ellie, you want to say something? No, go ahead. There's, I, I share a story that uh, I've shared many times, but I want to share it here because I think it really drives the point home in my own interactions with people. The story happened actually after my book, Toward a Meaningful Life, was published. And I went on a book tour, and one of the cities was in the Midwest, in St. Louis. Long story short, a woman wrote to me a letter. She was in the audience, and she basically wrote this following letter, which was, I would say, even a life-defining moment for myself, because I saw in, floor, in, 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 a, in, in a glaring and full-glory way, I saw the power of Hasidus in this context of th this therapeutic structure that relevant to our times. So the woman wrote to me this in a letter. She writes that she's a 47-year-old executive 
who is very successful. People respect her. She's influential, wealthy, well-connected, in everything you would consider to be success. But beneath the veneer of her success, she writes that there's a, there lies a woman in shreds. You see, my soul was murdered, she writes, due to the dysfunctionality, the abuse that I endured in my home. And she spells it out, physical, emotional, psychological, sexual. And it's left her feeling low, self-loathing, suicidal. Relationships have not worked in her life. She doesn't trust others. She's always testing, testing for loyalty. That's never, you know, expectations that are not realistic. And people don't trust her. So she says, a person like myself who lacks inner control of my life. So I went and created outer control. I became super ambitious and super driven and I workaholic and I you know, climbed the corporate ladder to the point of leadership that I am today. But every day is a struggle. Therapy has not really worked. She's Jewish, she writes, but completely unaffiliated. As a matter of fact, she stays away from anything Jewish because she grew up in a dysfunctional home and she doesn't want to have any relationship with anything that her parents did. They weren't observant per se, but they went to Shul, Yom Kippur or whatever. Anyway, and she long gave up hope. And the final note that she writes, which is, I think, tremendous, unbelievable. I mean, if we're, under the, we're not under these circumstances, it would be called eloquent. But this is what she writes. She says, I had long given up hope, but someone had given me a copy of your book, Toward a Meaningful Life. And a line jumped out at me, the beginning of the chapter on birth, that said, birth is God saying you matter. And she said, I read it again. Birth is God saying you matter. And I read it a third time. Birth is God saying that you matter. And I will read it the rest of my life. I suddenly realized like a, a golden, like a silver bullet between my eyes, like a thunderbolt, an awareness, an epiphany, that despite what my parents told me, the way they treated me, that I'm worthless, despite what society tells us, that we're no more than a statistic on someone's balance sheet, that I matter to the one that matters most, our creator, God. That even if I do not perform anything that day, society measures us by performance, buying power, your looks, your youth, your equity, your social status. Despite all of that, even if I do nothing that day, I am invaluable, indispensable. And then she continues and says, so what I need to do is to create, my work is cut out for me. What I need to do is I need to create bypass surgery to bypass the infected psychological arteries that were toxified and polluted by the way I was treated in my childhood and reconnect to that pure moment when my soul, and she writes, my neshama, my soul was given to me and God said, I love you. You are my child forever, unconditionally. You are indispensable. And she concludes, so thank you for giving me back my life. I just want to tell you my reaction. I remember it like today when I read that note, I was sobbing, I was crying, just, just her story and that the clarity that she had, that, that crystallization. I wrote her back, of course, thanking her and uh, more importantly, offering her my, my friendship, my support in any way, asking her permission to tell the story. She's given me the permission, but she's always asked me not to share her name. She didn't want others calling her either to help them or because they have a similar story. But listen to this, she came to the truth of all truths. You know, I grew up in a home, I'm the oldest of five children, you know, somewhat spoiled as the oldest, relatively, no family's perfect, but relatively functional. She, like the eclipse of the sun, did not have that luxury. 
But the eclipse of the sun reveals to you sunlight in ways that the sunlight does not. And she came to the truth that you matter not because your parents loved you. That's beautiful. That's an affirmation. That's a validation. You matter because you fundamentally, on a cosmic level, you are critically important. And what's tragic is when parents or childhood or education, whatever it is, the societal environments that are dysfunctional or invalidating, as Divi said earlier, what they do is they rip us away, they rob us of our essential birthright. Now, rob is a strong word. They don't take it from you, but it gets concealed and you really feel that you don't have any value. And therefore that lack of attachment. But she came to realize that the attachment has to be to something that is eternal, that's something that's unwavering and is not subject to ups and downs. You know, if my parents one day wake up and say, I don't like you that much, does that mean your stocks go down? If your friends suddenly don't approve of you, so you connect to something. So I have no doubt what I hear from Divi, I have no question in my mind. Develop properly this type of being able to connect to that point before the wounds and the scars entered your life is the key to finding true, powerful, and unwavering attachments that can help us in every possible way. I guess I wonder how that experience could, because the question is how when she read that, she believed it. That's, you know, that's what's cool, is that she read it and felt it. And I guess, Divi, in your sessions and what you're working through, I mean, I, I found this, but sometimes I Sometimes you need to hit, you know, Ellie, sometimes you need to hit rock bottom before right. you start feeling. Yeah. I, it was, I spent years in therapy, and I, I don't recall spirituality ever being introduced uh, to the conversation. I don't, I don't remember it at all. In um, 12 Steps, of course, I mean, that like instantaneously right in my face, it was, hey, this is a, uh, a spiritual program. And part of the healing is to get to that place. I guess what I'm, what I'm curious about and what I want to fine tune a little bit is, okay, you have these, these larger frameworks around God, spirituality that exist in very many places, right? Like, for example, the 12 Steps. So if we take it up a notch, Divi and Rabbi Jacobson, where's where's Hasidic philosophy adding something that that's beyond uh, some of the spirituality that's mentioned, if at all? I just want to, Ellie. You know, it's interesting that you say that that it was there wasn't spirituality introduced. I think uh, therapy has worked very hard to strip the soul out away from the mind um, at different points in history to create a soulless approach to the mind. And the question is, has it worked? Well, if you look at the state of mental health in our country, you might it's wonder, you know, <laughs> has it worked? And in fact, AA, which is very well known for its success in certain areas, and DBT, which has finally started to help some of the people who therapy could not help, are both heavily influenced by spiritual systems. So AA, we know, and then DBT, dialectical behavioral therapy, draws heavily on the Eastern traditions around radical acceptance and mindfulness, both of which were practiced by Marsha Linehan, who developed DBT in a spiritual practice. And then she brought it back to the States and formed a psychotherapy from it. So that just tells you something interesting about the role of spirituality and actually helping people through therapy. Um, but well, when do you think that this? happened? What? When do you think that happened? Because you take like, I'm, I'm reading now, um, I pulled it up as we were talking, a letter from Carl Jung, which in his day was one of the preeminent psychologists. 
and uh, his dialogue he had with Bill Wilson, the founder of Alcoholics Anonymous. And in there, I mean, he, I mean you see that he's walking gingerly around the subject of spirituality, but he's in, the, in his letter, he says, well, now that I can talk freely with you, I'll tell you what I really saw going on. And he's like, you know, people who drink alcohol, I'll, I'll read his words. He said, his craving for alcohol, he was talking about a, a person who eventually became an AA member and who was a patient of Dr. Young. He said his craving for alcohol was the equivalent on a low level of the spiritual thirst of our being for wholeness, expressed in medieval language, the union with God. But in it, he says that I was very careful when I talked. Um, I was exceedingly careful of what I said. I had found that I was misunderstood in every possible way, meaning he's around these spiritual concepts. He didn't want to talk too freely. So in the history of psychology and going Freud and Jung and some of the larger names, was it were, were they already moving away from it? Were they, like, when did, when did we become soulless as it relates to psychology? I felt that, but I didn't know it was a, it's interesting well, to me that you mentioned that. This is, it would be a really interesting conversation. I'm no expert on the history of psychology, but Freud himself was distancing from his roots and wanted to form a secular psycho system of working with the mind. Um, and he felt that everything could be contained intrapsychically in one person's psyche. So he worked very hard at symptom reduction, which has become sort of the model for modern psychotherapy. Generally speaking, we work to reduce symptoms. And that's a way of getting around the problem of spirituality, right? If we focus on reducing symptoms, we don't have to worry about what the mind is actually, what's beyond the mind. It's interesting that passage from this person describing addiction, because I think that's so common to so many of the people who end up in therapy, whether it's for addiction or depression, they are the people who cannot tolerate the pain of this alienation that we all feel. So some of us can ignore it, others can't, and those who can't ignore it are the ones who end up coming to psychotherapy for help. Interesting. So you're saying everyone's experiencing it to a degree, and then there's some who are so sensitive that it really. Let, let me them. weigh in here, if I may. Let's go. <laughs> I actually did extensive research on this topic of uh, the early roots of psychology and the relationship with spirituality. When I began my program eight years ago called My Life Citizen Applied, I really wanted to get to the bottom of this topic. And I actually have a few articles on uh, my website, MeaningfulLife.com, that talk about this. I was just looking one up. Um, medicine, psychology, and spirituality, are they compatible? And really identifying that it really comes down to, to put it very briefly, the battle between religion and science, or between faith and reason, that was raging, that began raging after the Renaissance, during the, what we call the Enlightenment, 17th, 18th century, was a response to a very corrupt religion. So there was very good reason that religion was not being trusted anymore. You know, the famous Galileo story, where Galileo had, had, had discovered or identified that the, that the sun does not go around the earth, the other way around, and the church for, forced them to recant. I'm not getting now into the science of it, but this was the common uh, experience by the so-called enlightenment, who said that religion is just a, a mind control. It's all about power and influence. It has nothing to do with anything deeper and so on. So God became a dirty word and religion became dirty. And so you're saying religion stripped God from religion. Exactly. Therapy stripped like, like, religion like, like from... When they say, 
when they say Nietzsche said God is dead, when you really read Nietzsche, he says the God that is dead was never alive in the first place. I just exposed it, in other words. And contrast, if I may say, Rabbi Levi Yitzhak said to the self-proclaimed atheist, the God you don't believe in, I don't believe in either. Right. In other words, the God that was then dominating the church and, and whatever, any corrupt or polluted form of religion became something off limits. Science replaced religion, but went to the other extreme. It decided, you know what? Man-made enlightenment is more powerful than anything, and it turned science into a God. So long story short, we have ourselves a big dilemma because this battle continues to rage, especially in the world of, acad in the, of academia and in the world of science and medicine and including therapy and, and uh, psychology. So in a sense, the time is ripe for a new revolution where we were able to find the healthy parts of spirituality and integrate it properly. Because the fact of the matter is, when you're dealing with a human being, only a corpse doesn't need therapy. So if someone's alive, that means they have some form of soul. You can call it, you want to call it the soul within the mind. I mean, I'm not, I'm not getting into semantics. But what we're discussing, to me, is so critical because we're trying to rebalance and say, one second here, you know, science is not enough. Human reason is not enough. We need also to be able to deal with the human soul. You know that psychology comes from the word study of the soul. Psych, psyche is basically ancient Greek which means, and Latin for soul, and ology is study of the soul. Right. But once upon a time, soul, the people who were the masters, of, the, the, the masters of psychology were soul doctors. Who were the leaders? It was the religious uh, leaders that were soul, spiritual doctors. But then, they, as I said, that went one way. The Balsamsev was known as a healer, right? People went to him for... If you, go, if you open up the Torah, it says, the Koyin Asher Biyamecha. The healers were the priests. Were the, were the teachers. A rabbi was not an administrative fundraiser or a good <laughs> sermonizer. A rabbi was essentially an expert of the soul. When you came to a rabbi, you weren't just looking to find out whether the chicken is kosher or the Shabbos began 801 or 802. You looked at to, to find out what, tell me about my soul. Soul doctor, I'm using that word very intentionally. Maimonides calls it rufus haguf, rufus hanefesh. Rufus HaGuf is the healing of the body, and Rufus HaNef is the healing of the soul or the psyche. So a lot more to say on this, but suffice it to say, it's high time for a recalibration and a, re a balanced approach to soul, body, mind, healing, which uh, Divi said it right. Look at this, look at statistics. Look at statistics with all that therapy has done and all different types of therapy. There's a, there's a lot more to be achieved and soul can only be a benefit. I'm not talking about preaching religion. We're not telling anyone to be religious or not religious or what religion. We're talking about taking the best of, of, this, of the soulful, intimate knowledge that has been accumulated over thousands of years and applying it to the 21st century condition, human condition. Very interesting. Divi, I want to make sure I didn't misunderstand you before. Did you say that, I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of common knowledge that mental health doesn't score very well in terms of efficacy, right? Someone has an illness, addiction, they go to rehab for 90 days, spend $1,000 a day, 5% of the time, they, uh, they, they don't relapse within 24 months or, you know, some measure of, uh, of success and very, very low. People have depression, they go to psychiatrists, they go on medication, 
you're talking somewhere between 10 and 20% see some alleviation of, of symptoms. So it's very low. Are you saying that you think a big part of that is because um, the soul, what did, what did you call it? You said psychology has become soulless. Right. Are you connecting the two? I think about the connection a lot. And I think we ought to be thinking about the connection. I mean, uh, I mean are, you, are you saying that because it's soulless, it does so poorly? Well, I think because our society has become soulless to some degree, we've created environments that are not conducive to mental health and well-being. You're bringing up addiction. So the famous TED Talk on addiction by Joanne Hari, mm -hmm. his famous line is, right, the opposite of addiction is not sobriety, it's connection. Mm -hmm. So spirituality does go hand in hand with a life of connection, right? Connection to something greater than oneself. And when we live in a environment that is not just not spiritual, so why, but why you do what? Why are you doing that? Why are you saying that? Did Johan Hari mean connection to a higher power when he said that? Right. So no, right? He meant connection. He meant social connection primarily. Right. But I think social connection is very limited for people, and social connection still happens best in a community where people understand what being connected to a bigger, bigger, being part of something bigger means. So it's I can't make an argument that they're advocating for connection to God. But I think the idea of spirituality is about connecting to something larger than yourself, whatever that something is. Yeah, I mean, that's the way the 12 steps um, suggested. I, I find that, for example, that the 12 steps um, walks around it in a little bit of a dishonest way, to tell you the truth, in the sense, not in the core, not in the book, but in the way it's promoted in the, in the rooms often. I haven't been in every room, but the ones that I'm a part of, they... Like I've heard very common, GOD can stand for group of drunks, right? So if you need your higher power to be this group, your higher power can be this group. If you need your higher power to be the doorknob, it can be the doorknob. Like it could be anything as long as it's not you. And I think there's, there's use to that in the sense that you would teach a first grader something on a first grade level, but you know that there's more to be taught afterwards. In, within 12 steps, there are very specific claims it makes about this higher power. So mm -hmm. it doesn't just say high... It doesn't just say higher power. I'll give you an example. Step three meet, reads, made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood God. That means if I'm turning it over to the care of God, it can't be a doorknob because the doorknob doesn't care very much. So I've just rooted, I just gotten rid of that, right? Um, it, it's, it, there's also- I suggest there's a will of God, right? Because it made mm -hmm. to turn my will and my life over to the care of. So there are certain claims that it's making about this God, but it definitely is not a religious. It doesn't say, right. it doesn't make any statement about that. It's, it says somewhere that keep it of aim is a practice for how to respect and connect with God. So the idea is that there's something larger than yourself is like a parent. You can't just have a mock parent or a substitute parent or a doorknob parent. Right. You have to have a felt connection to this person as your parent in the same way that something larger than yourself. It's a higher power doesn't serve any purpose for you if you don't have a real connection to it. So I guess to be direct about your question, it's very possible that stripping the soul out of psychology and society has contributed directly to the rise in mental health conditions and addictions in our country and in our modern society. That's a massive statement. I mean, you realize the implications of it. And this conversation well, uh, is a lot bigger than I originally thought when we got into it. I mean, if you're saying well, that. Let, let, let me say this. I'll make it even more controversial, if you like, and more radical. 
I second that and even stronger than that. I speak from experience, talking about hard-earned experience, speaking to people. Let me define soul, and, and I think once you define it, it won't be so controversial, this statement. I think it's controversial when people think of soul as a religious entity, right? like essentially saying without religion, there would be, uh, there'll be mental health issues. With religion, we'll get rid of mental health issues. Most people would have a big problem with that, including me, right. <laughs> because religion has also been hijacked, as I alluded to earlier. But let's define spirituality or soul in a healthy way, because it really comes down to the big question, the real elephant in the room, is who are you? Are you a physical body, no different than a refrigerator or another appliance that simply functions on a biological level, moves through life by accident, and you know, you make the best of it, trying to make money, trying to have some love in your life, trying to have some purpose, whatever it may be. Or are you a, an agent, essentially, of a higher entity, of a higher reality? To put it in other terms, are you a physical being on a spiritual journey, or are you a spiritual being on a physical journey? In other words, your very identity is a transcendent one, which means you're not here just to survive, just to make it. You actually have real purpose to your life, real meaning. So therefore, there's a mission involved. And the most important thing for happiness in life is to fulfill your higher mission, your higher calling, not just to live a life of comfort and pleasure and self-indulgence. This, I think, is the real battle in very practical terms. We want it to, I want to be happy. You know, let's call it the Freudian pleasure principle. I want to enjoy my life, especially in the area of unfettered, let's say, sexual pleasure. That's where a human being may gravitate to. And therefore, anything that threatens your comfort zone is going to be seen as something that I don't want to have a relationship with. But then here comes the issue. You're a human being. You're not just an animal. You're not just going to be able to get by with animal bliss. We have a restlessness within us. We seek higher goals, values. We have a, more, a moral side to us, a conscience. So yes, the real cynics will say, let's get rid of all of that. Those are all evolutionary mutations. We should just be just like animals in the wild. Your mood of breeding, you breed. There are no rules, there are no guidelines. It's dog eats dog, survival of the fittest. But the fact is, and I'm not here to prove the case, there's a very other case that a human being is fundamentally a more refined, elevated, and a spiritual creature, and a spiritual creature within a body. And if you're not going to address that, there's no way that a person could have mental health intact without addressing a fundamental component in them, which is the need for love, the need for healthy attachment, the need for transcendence, and so on. And you see, I haven't used one religious word here. Most people so, would so you're, say right, yes. Jameson, you're kind of saying to that statement, like, no, duh. You're, take, you're taking out most of 80, 90% of what a person is. You're ignoring it in the therapy session. And how do you expect it to be effective? Exactly. Exactly. It's like putting Band-Aids. Right, you're saying it's not even a radical statement. It's just obvious. Absolutely. Once right, you identify what a human <laughs> being is. Now, one second. Right. If a human being, once, uh, let me just say one more thing. If a human being was a machine, like a computer that's broken, you bring it into a therapy room, you fix up the springs and the wires and the, and the microchips or whatever it is, and it's working. But that, we know that human being is just, is not, that's not, not, uh, is not adequate, obviously. Divi, so when, when you're in school, you went to Yale, I believe, right? Mm -hmm. So, so how, are they, how are they teaching psychology? They, do they strip this out entirely? Is it addressed at all? Or they uh, strip it out without even telling you they're stripping it out? In my experience, 
which was just my own experience at Yale, it was pretty reductionistic, very neurobiologically based, which by the way is not bad. I think the fact that the focus shifted to very hard, uh, nuts and bolts of neurobiology, you know, science did accomplish a lot. And that's why this is a great time to reinfuse the spirituality component because we have so much more working knowledge of the neurobiological substrates right in the brain. Right. Um, so it, it, there was nothing about spirituality in my education. And I like Rabbi Jacobson that you said psychology was the study of the soul and the psychiatrists were supposed to be the soul doctors, literally. And today, psychiatrists have become the people who run the medication management sessions. They practically don't necessarily even do psychotherapy anymore. So they're I not. I that insurance only pays for 10 minutes of a session between a psychiatrist and a patient. So it's really not, I don't know if that's right. true, but it's really so not getting to know them. It's pretty much like, hello, here's your Prozac. You know, there's the cartoon, like, until we find a way, you know, he's handing the patient a Prozac until we find a way to make the less soul crushing society, speaking to the role of soul and creating a society where we don't all have to be on pro we're we're you know we're when you have a situation where so many people are coming to medications for help just functioning you do have to ask well what might be modified in the environment right what's going on in the environment that people are in this state so yes in practical lives of psychiatric providers there's not just is there no you know time to talk about a person's spiritual experience, but there's very little time to talk about the person's inner world at all. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll give you a good example. Um, let's take uh, anxiety. I'm not talking about clinical anxiety where you may need at some point more than just uh, therapy and so on. Take anxiety or angst, human angst, restlessness, whether it's a child's restlessness or an adult's restlessness. How do you resolve restlessness? Like today I woke up, I'm not in a good mood. I feel a little depressed. I'm not motivated. I'm bored. I'm not even talking about anything dangerous or self-destructive. What's the conventional secular Western response to restlessness? So the usual response is do something that'll make you feel better. Play a video game, go watch a movie, um, you know, do something, uh, sexual release. You know, you find all kinds of ways to deal with it. What are you talking about here? You're not, we're not even understanding where restlessness is coming from. We're just trying to find some, some, some uh, Band-Aid, some quick fix to a restlessness that may be coming from a person's need for something much more than just release or venting. Again, I'm not talking about something superficial, you know. Obviously, take a walk in the park, go exercise, release your energy, release your tension. So when you, when, the problem is that once they cut out the soul and the transcendent dimension, and, there's, and it was actually an active assault. We're not talking about by accident. It was to eliminate anything that may sound like higher value or godly or what, the, what even the Declaration of Independence says, that all people are created equal. I said people that we all have um, um, endowed by the creator with inalienable rights. These things became very threatening. And so when you want to cut all that out, so when a person therefore is needy or something, I'm talking about on a basic level, we're not even getting into abuse and trauma, then how do you address it? How does an average parent address the restlessness, the angst, and I call restlessness healthy restlessness. You know, you wanna do something with your life. How is it responded to? Okay, go make a lot of money. It'll resolve your issues. But the truth is restlessness 
and I'm using now Hasidic language, comes from the flame of the soul. The soul by nature is a restless entity. It's like a flame, a flickering flame. It's always seeking. It's not satisfied with animal bliss, with being a couch potato, with just sitting around doing nothing. It seeks something. It's a seeker. It's the part of us that you don't want to eliminate. You see children crawling around exploring? That's their soul at work, seeking. They're learning, free abandon. And when we tell children, sit in your own, own place, what you're doing is freezing and paralyzing the thing that makes us human, which is that we are constantly on the move, constantly seeking more. We're looking up the heavens, what's out there, curiosity, and that's so much of the spirit. You know, I, I, I remember listening to a TED talk by a British uh, child psychologist, excellent talk about education, how the modern Western world's secular education essentially has cut out creativity and imagination from children. Right. It became, it was all based on Frederick the Great and Napoleon creating efficient soldiers. So the focus was on physical sciences, mathematics. Human factories. Right, exactly. Instead of things like arts, science, uh, art, music, anything with that became extracurricular, like almost optional. Look at children. Children are fundamentally creative creatures that are always imagining things. They're dreamers. And what we do is we destroy their dream and we cause them to become efficient machines, essentially number crunchers and so on. I'm not saying it's completely eliminated because you can't kill the human spirit. But if you're not going to address that, and I'm not even talking here about trauma, abuse, I'm speaking of just basic needs that a human being needs to dream. We need to imagine, we need to believe, we need to hope. When you destroy all of that, either with cynicism or just black and white mathematical statistics, can we be human beings that just live on statistics? We need to believe that after something we were hurt, we can grow. There's a lot more to it than just uh, statistics. So you want to wage a war to bring it back in, is what you're saying. You want to wage a war to bring the yeah. soul and spirituality back into this process. This Absolutely. is a very good time for that. Let, let me um, ask a million dollar question, right? Because we're World talking about philosophy. It's World War III without weapons and without <laughs> bloodshed and without death. So I'll talk about my own journey, which I often do. I'm not I'm not a therapist, but uh, I spent a lot of time with them and a lot of money on them over the years. And um, I guess I'm obsessed Did you ever with add this. up how much? Did you ever add up how much? Uh, hundreds and hundreds of thousands. I, <laughs> I, I have no idea. And I didn't, and I never went to rehab. I never went to rehab. I did a lot of retreats and seminars and all, you know, all sorts of other things, but I never had that. I, I wanted to on several occasions, but it, to take off 30, 60 or 90 days, my life didn't allow for it. So I never, uh, it wasn't really, an, it re wasn't really an option and still it got up there. So wh when I was working in therapy, like I said, there was no mention of it whatsoever. Afterwards, I went into 12 steps. The first time I heard the word God, I nearly walked out, but I really had no other choice because I was struggling a lot with the addiction. So I, I stayed a little bit longer and I was able to get past the, um, some of the religious trauma and, and reconnect it and reapproach it. Since then, um, I always work with someone those day. I, I recommend it to everyone that they should, you know, even if it's not a, uh, a therapist, I have a coach I speak to every, every single week now. And I'll, I think for the rest of my life, I'll always have someone that I talk to on a, on a regular basis. And as I went more into the coaching world and looking at some of the other stuff, I found that spirituality in there. 
in one way you see it is, for example, and it's become more and more common within the mental health community, things like meditation and some of these spiritual practices, gratitude lists and things like that. I've seen a lot of Buddhist type concepts and Buddhist men mentions um, brought up in it, brought up like within this. In meditation, it's, it's very common and they reference Buddhism in many ways. Scott Peck in his book, The Road Less Traveled, one of my favorite books and a great book on recovery, actually starts his opening words are talking about the first rule of Buddhism. And Scott Peck is someone as, as a psychotherapist who became very comfortable over the course of his career injecting spirituality and God. And eventually he became, um, his, his later books are pretty much just straight Christianity, not, not psychotherapy. But um, what is... So within that framework, what does Hasidic philosophy have to add over, say, Buddhism when it's related to, the, to this? For example, in the 12 steps, you talk about spirituality. Buddhism talks about karma. I'm not that familiar with Buddhism, but it introduced a lot of concepts that I think many people benefit from. What does Hasidic philosophy have to offer that those don't have to? And now I can be quiet for the, for the rest. So that, that, me, that's, my, me, that's a million dollar question. I think we are okay. It's spirituality. We need to introduce it. There are so many ways for that to be introduced. People have a psychedelic journey. And I think they also feel a, a connection and, uh, to, to energy, to something more. What does Hasidic philosophy have that these other things don't? Okay, let me, let me take if that. If at all. And, um, I will say this. I'll just amplify the question a bit more. You probably know, I don't know if you know this, that I believe 60% of Buddhists in America are Jewish. <laughs> and during the 60s- I haven't done a study, but I've run across some of the names. You know, yeah. they weren't always Ram something, yeah. Ram Das was Steve Alpert, yeah. <laughs> I, I met, I had the privilege and honor to meet quite a few of them who in, their, in the 60s, where it began the 60s, you know, the generation of uh, uh, sex, drugs and rock and roll, and uh, that revolution, Many who grew up in Jewish homes, some even observant, were seeking spirituality desperately. And they did not find it in their own backyard, so they, seek, they went to India. They went to the East and the Far East and found it. They found it in their, either the, in Buddhism, in Hinduism, in Taoism, in Confucianism, and so on, as well as in uh, alternative substances, psychedelics, LSD, and so on. Um, I have met many of them. And so I talked to you from discussing, comparing notes. I used to get, my classes, I had many people like this who came from that world, and it was fascinating. Um, I'm not going to go through all the stories and so on, fast, funny, humorous, the works. But in doing the comparison, and I think it's important to qualify, you know, we're not looking to pull rank here and say Judaism or Hasidic philosophy is better than others. I don't want to go there. I believe that God planted truths all over the world, and wherever you go, you're going to find some of these higher truths. And that's why there's so many parallels between Far Eastern mysticism and Jewish mysticism and so on. But I will say the following, two key things that, that, that make Judaism stand out. And I will share with you, I was good friends with Leonard Cohen. Leonard Cohen, a Jewish boy that came from Montreal. His mother, as he told me, raised money for the UJA, a very traditional home. And Leonard Cohen became an icon an icon of, a, of a, a, a person, some people called him the singer that made uh, depression fashionable. He spoke, he sings a lot about darkness. 
but he was a very proud Jew, and we were very friendly. We actually have a communication of over 30 pages in comparing Buddhism to Judaism, to Hasidic philosophy. So um, I'll be happy to share it with you, Ellie. But I want to share the, the following brief points. Though there are many commonalities, and that is, of course, the most common thing of all, that the, that's what's primary in a human being is the soul versus the body. In the words of the Alter Rebbe, the founder of Chabad Hasidus in Tanya, chapter 32, that the secret to love is that spirit is stronger than matter, that your soul is stronger than your body. As long as it's not, if you worship your body more than your soul, you never can truly love unconditionally. Because as materialism divides, spirituality unites. In that sense, there are many, many common denominators, spiritual energy, higher realities, higher states of consciousness, and so on. The key distinction of Jewish philosophy or Hasidus and, and um, other, other schools of mysticism is in two areas. One, I'll quote a letter from the Lubavitcher Rebbe that he wrote to a conference in London. It was a conference on Jewish mysticism. And he writes that in Jewish mysticism, as opposed to all other schools of mysticism, you can reach greater spiritual heights through a simple act than through a meditation. So number one, the focus on action in addition to spiritual enlightenment. The mitzvah, the deed. It's not just enough to be spiritually connected to others. You also have to translate it into a physical expression of tzedakah, charity, love, get married, build a family. The second distinction is the other way around, that in most spiritual systems, maybe all, they talk about two dimensions, material and spiritual, matter and spirit. And in Judaism, especially in Hasidus, the, the focus is that material, matter and spirit are two dimensions. But there's a third dimension that's neither matter, matter or spirit. That the true reality of the undefined essence of the divine is neither, is not closer to the spirit than it is to the body. And that's why you can integrate the two. So it's really transcending transcendence. To, to, make, to drive the point home, you can be a spiritually arrogant person. There are many people who are very spiritual and they actually feel superior. Yogis are to, always. I don't know, no offense to yogis, but I've never met a, uh, right. a non-arrogant so, yogi. So the truth is, in Hasidic philosophy, you'll see the, the point is not to become spiritual, it's to become humble. Bittal is the ultimate drive. It's not about you, not about your physical you, it's not about your spiritual you. It's about something that's even higher than spirituality. However, spirituality is a good bridge because spirituality takes you away from material indulgence and self-indulgence. It's more transcendent. But the goal of transcendence is to lead you to even further transcendence and not take yourself so seriously and be connected to something that's a third, we call it the third dimension that joins and unites spirit and matter, which even in physics, in modern physics, when you talk about the, uh, the subatomic world of quantum mechanics, what they call the indeterministic world, and the deterministic world of Newtonian physics on a, macro, on a macrocosmic, macroscopic level, this also answers that question that has been eluding all scientists. Can you join those two realities, one that is beyond definitions and the one that is a world of very strong definitions? And to bring it back psychologically, the connection between the superconscious and the conscious that comes from a level that's beyond supraconscious too. So that's why a simple act has the same power as a spiritual meditation. 
the goal is to unite and join the two. That is, in essence, those two key differences that really distinguish between the Jewish Hasidic philosophy and other philosophies without taking away from any of their uh, benefits. Understood. And how would that uh, translate to a mental health concern, if at all? Very simply. I'll tell you how. When let, uh, and I'd love to hear what Divi has to say, but let me yeah. just answer from my end, and I want to hear what she would say. In other words, when you're dealing with, let's say, we're talking about attachment disorder or attachment um, rupture, mm -hmm. a good word, and you're trying to help person to re reattach to something healthy. So, of course, you can work on connecting to God, connecting to your soul, but you also add and say something I've been recently calling a spiritual spa. Spa as in study, prayer, action, SPA. That in other words, a regimen would not just include meditations and prayers, but also actions. For example, I was just talking, I was just talking to an individual who has a lot of such challenges, and he's telling me, you know what, first I need to heal before I start dating and getting married. I said, no, I don't agree with you. I think if you want to learn how to swim, you have to go start swimming. Obviously, you have to work on yourself if you're not ready, but, but don't think that you're going to become a perfect human being and then you're going to get married and find the right soulmate. You need to work on both together. In other words, in, the, in, my, in, the, in, the, in this application based on Hasidic philosophy, you would include actions, real behavioral actions. It could be actions of goodness and kindness. It could be actions of finding someone that you love and treating them nicely and kindly and learning on the job with commitment and so on. And not just saying, first, let me work on my soul before I re-enter into the material world and so on. Because we are, at the end of the day, souls within bodies, and we need to contend with that. So just to use spiritual practices without some, some behavioral or call action-based would not be a complete thing. So that would be number one. Number two, and also the discipline of your body. In other words, it's not like you just will do whatever you want. Let's talk about sexuality. From a, from a Hasidic perspective, sexuality is a very powerful, intimate energy. In the secular psychology, sexuality is an energy that you can, if you need to release tension, do it. In Judaism, it says no. Hasidic, Hasidicism will say, Harness it. Understand that this is intimate soul energy that needs to be harnessed and directed properly. Well, in other words, and some of those, I mean, I've come across it uh, at least like, a, like a, I guess, in the shamanic traditions and things like that, where they'll disconnect completely from their sexuality and go for as long periods of, as time without well, it. That's also, that not, them to. that's also not a, a celibacy is, a, is another issue. Repressing. The goal is to engage body and soul in healthy nurturing and attachment activities. That's the, 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 the way I would phrase it. Um, it. Now, the fact, Ellie, the fact that there are similarities, I, you know, I don't think we have to necessarily- No, for sure. I know, there's no question similarities. I just want to know, I wanted a, a distinction. Yeah, go ahead. Divi, I, I, I want to go back to, to that, that question versus jumping in. Um, the one that Rabbi Jacobson answered, and I, uh, I, I hear the answer, I get it, I understand it, and I, I guess I've experienced it. I've never seen that you know, in the meditative practices where the highest calling in that world seems to be how long one can meditate and how long they can stay disconnected from, from the world. And those are the ones that are most respected. And you think of someone like the Rebbe, for example, who spent most of his time, not in deep meditation, but meeting with people about their everyday problems. Right. Yeah. The first thing that came to mind was the contrast between the spiritual superiority in these traditions and the emphasis on Bittal. And 
Bitdil is such a practical concept and there's so much, there's so many practical, there's so much learning to be done that can guide you directly toward what Bitdil can mean in your life. That can be both practical for clients, but I just want to point out also for some of the patients that I'm working with, some of these ideas might seem rather esoteric and they may not be ready for them, but I'm influenced by these ideas, right? So if I show up to the session with the patient and I have a sense of what humility actually means, that has a direct influence on the patient. So when we talk about psychotherapy, we're not only talking about what's directly useful to the patient, we're also talking about what the clinician is bringing into the room. And it's very rare to find a clinician who can bring true humility into the room. And it is very healing. So I think Hasidus is directly relevant there. So Bittal and the emphasis on action, for sure, that's hugely missing. So in like Eastern I, traditions and these other modes of spirituality, you don't see, I, mean, I see it in the 12 steps, obviously, it, it, it brings up humility a lot. But in, in these other traditions, you don't see that at all. Well, you see it as a concept, but as you said, we often see there's a recent study actually showing higher rates of narcissism among people who identify as spiritual. So practically speaking, <laughs> do they have the humility? Um, and then the action. So that's something I observe that I see the girls, they're going from group to group to group, but they're not doing anything that feels like a contribution to the world. So that emphasis on action and not just emphasis on action, again, but that to group to group, I didn't understand what you I mean. Group therapy, you know, one group after another, they're in a treatment center. So there's a oh, lot right. of group therapy, right? But what they're, but there's not much that they get to do um, in that setting, but also not necessarily much that they get pushed to do in their lives. And that emphasis on action is so empowering to people to have a way to contribute to the world in a way that they can see the results of. And, you know, Chassidus, all of the ideas about Hashkacha Pratis, that this action that you're doing is not random, but there's a connection between, let's say, this physical food you're eating and purifying the sparks. That might sound very religious, but it's actually a very practical idea. And I think about especially people struggling with eating disorders and body image dissatisfaction, the way that Chassidus looks at the physical body uh, is unique to other traditions, right? And the way that it relates action to our practical day-to-day -day tasks is unique. And these are just examples. I'm sure we could go on and on. I, I, very, that's great. I would add a few points that just came to mind as you were speaking, or two things about the Bittle. It also comes down to the, the root of it all. You know, in all systems, whether it's a scientist, a physicist or a healer, a therapist and so on, it comes down to how seriously you take yourself. You know, I'm this great healer, I'm brilliant, I'm sensitive, or are you simply a channel for something higher working through you and you're honored and humbled to be that channel of bringing healing to others? That's not semantics. In Hasidic philosophy, that's the fundamental principle that you begin your life egocentric, but you come to learn that's not about you. The greatest gift is not that you annihilate yourself, but you become a channel for something greater than you. You know, when people talk about being in the zone, it could be a football player, it could be a tennis player, it could be a, a, a pianist, it could be a writer. Being in the zone means you lose sense, you lose sense 
you lose a sense of self and all you are is really channeling something greater than you are. I once heard from a, a gynecologist, a very famous fertility expert, not Jewish, extremely humble, but he was a real expert. And he said to me, we don't heal. He said, God heals. The human body has a natural immunity system. We're facilitators. We try to get rid of an obstacle. We try to get that healing system active, stimulated if need be. But we don't you heal. say natural That's... immunity system, you're going to get this podcast thrown off the air. So please. <laughs> Zoom yeah. is going to like if, if everything dis disconnects suddenly, we know it's good. We don't, we don't believe it. It's just one opinion. Don't worry. Okay. <laughs> I'm kidding. Okay. Kidding. Okay. But the point is that idea of being an ambassador, a channel for something greater is the ultimate when if a healer brings that into the room that itself is tremendously healing because then there's no ego in the room even the ego of a genius who may be the greatest healer on earth it's not about you what is moses the moses the most the most the, the most brilliant leader the genius the most humble man on the face of the earth right? exactly that's his description and what is the first time he's titled he's, he's a shepherd he's a simple shepherd tending to the flock his focus is not on himself. And that's a trend. I also wanted to make one distinction between Western psychology and Eastern. I think in Eastern thinking, there is more of Bittel. In Western psychology, less of it, to be honest. Again, I don't want to generalize either. But generally speaking, in the Eastern systems, Bittel is a concept. But I agree with Divi, it's not necessarily implemented as much. But it all comes down to individuals. I've met individuals who have not learned Hasidic yet, but they are very Hasidic people. They have it like in their gut. Instinctively, they have that humility. And the focus on action cannot be overstated. I just want to add one more thing. For um, People ask me often, is Hasidic psychology behavioral or therapeutic? In other words, is it based on doing mitzvahs, doing good things, saying thank you even if you're not in the mood? Or does it require what we call avoda pnimis, inner work, therapeutic work, working on your emotional tendencies, your predispositions. Like, like in the sphere of the Omer, we count the Omer, we work on and refine our personal emotions. Which one is it? And interestingly and fascinatingly, Hasidic philosophy and psychology come together, bring both the best of both. There's a behavioral element that's necessary. Even if you're not in the mood, keep Shabbos. Even if you're not in the mood, be nice to your spouse and to your children. It's not always based on your moods. You, you do it, you know, fake it until you make it, as they say. But on the other hand, there's a fundamental sense of deeper purpose and a deeper soul within you that you also have to uncover. So it's actually the behavioral on the outside and the internal work on the inside where they meet and they join together. So you cover and you're attacking it from both angles. It's like when you're pumping oil from the ground. You need to dig deep in, but you also need to create a surface where the oil comes out or a well of water, and I think it's a very important thing to emphasize, combination of behavioral and internal work. A question uh, for both of you, uh, maybe I'll go to Divi just because you've spoken a little bit shorter, but the, do you feel like if Hasidic philosophy was introduced on a wide scale to many, many, many therapists, not again, of course, not in the religious way, this, this type of conversation and elaborated on and points dissected that it would, it would change psychology in a, in a fundamental way. I can I really see. Yeah, I'll just 
speak from my own experience. Like I know that I bring my Hasidic upbringing to the table and I know that I get feedback that it's that something I'm bringing to the work is different and appreciated. Right. I'm asking a different question though. Mm -hmm. Meaning can I, you're, you're embracing the whole of the lifestyle. And then with that lifestyle, then that's changing. That's who you are. And then you're bringing that to your patients. Uh, Scott Peck didn't become a Buddhist, but his work is influenced by it. Can these concepts influence one without deciding to grow a beard, wear a wig? That's, that, that's more of my question. Meaning, can this be mainstream thought amongst non-Jewish psychologists, people who are not looking to fully embrace all of the aspects of Hasidic philosophy? And Judaism, I don't believe, attempts to um, make everyone religious or make everyone Jewish. It's not the, I just say make everyone Jewish. That's not, that's, that's not the goal. If these concepts were introduced to someone who wasn't practicing it the way you are, practicing it the way Rabbi Simon is, would it, could it still have a profound impact on the psychological, on the, on, on the world of psychology? Well, there's a precedent for that because there are people who are learn, you, learning and applying chassidus to their lives, but may not live a traditionally orthodox life and they're effectively using it. In my own life, I don't think that the lifestyle, it's, I don't think it's dependent on the lifestyle, but it's a really good question. And how would I know, right? Because it's always been tied to the lifestyle for me. But I think we'd have to be kind of implement and I don't think any of us can predict what would happen. It's on the basis of what we know, kind of why wouldn't there be huge potential? Also, um, I know you, you'll go you to think Rabbi it should be done. That's a question. Uh, and we, we have, a, we have a, a science that's so undeveloped in the sense that it's, it's not working, right? No one, no one pretends that it's working. We have a massive mental health problem everywhere, not only in the, in, in, in the religious communities where people you know, know each other and we've been seeing more names and more people are talking about different issues, but from everything, from depression to anxiety, to suicide, to eating disorders, to addiction, we don't have good solutions for it. So if there's a chance of something, then yeah, it's worth exploring. Based on this conversation, is that something worth exploring to, to bring some of these concepts to the are masses, we putting, to psychologists? Are we putting our money down for an, an, are we investing? Is that the question? Let's say, right, Leah, let's say that's the question. Uh, uh, let's say uh, there's let me, me let or me others respond. who are hearing this idea and saying, hey, is this something we should push? Well, let me let me say my thought on this. If I was speaking to a group of venture capitalists, I would say that this is the greatest investment and the greatest return you'll ever receive because the world of the future is going to be whoever masters the ability to create the best mental health for human beings. Because as we put less and less focus on material uh, production, as in technology AI, advances, like yeah. you're going to need a lot more you know, all the mental and emotional misery results when you have a lot of free time. You know, when you're busy sweating, yeah, when you're busy sweating 12 hours a day on a farm just to get a bushel of wheat or rice, you don't have time to be dysfunctional. Okay. <laughs> um, right, they don't so, have the luxury to spell the word trauma. Right. You know, <laughs> I, I, there's, there's a statistic. There was a Adam, um, his name is Adam um, Rickover. He was a four-star, which is the highest level you can reach in the Navy, the U.S. Navy. He actually came from Europe. He was a Jew. In the 1955, he gave a talk. 
his talk was, this is my venture capitalist, I don't know if it's elevator pitch, a little more than elevator. He, he gave a talk and said, from 1855 to 1955, here's a tremendous statistic. Energy, the energy generated on this earth in 1855, over 90% was generated by human labor. And in 1955, over 90% was generated by machines. You see the difference? Yeah. A machine, which essentially changed two key things, he said. Enormous explosion of wealth, because whoever controlled those machines now is generating tremendous amounts of wealth and a, and a tremendous amount of free time. What do they do with this free time? So I want to submit that this free time used well makes you into a very powerful human being. Used not well creates a breeding ground for all problems. But let me go back for a moment. I have no question in my mind that Hasidus, and I call it Hasidic philosophy and psychology. I actually was wondering about the title, because right. it's not just a philosophy, it's a psychology, it's a way of life, is, is, has the, completely can transform the universe in every possible way. And I'll quote the prophet Isaiah, who says, it will be a world that will no longer have destruction and pain and evil, because the world will be filled with divine knowledge, divine knowledge as the waters cover the sea. In the words of Maimonides, that in the future, the primary commodity, the primary goal of people will be not material success, but to know the divine, which in different ways is learning, is experiencing learning and, and applying Hasidus. So Hasidus is not exclusive in the sense there are many spiritual systems that have many ideas of Hasidus they don't even know about. It. The point is, it's a comprehensive spiritual blueprint for life that just like a physical doctor would give you an x-ray of your body, Hasidus gives you an x-ray of your soul. As far as the way of life goes, the details of whether it's the, the, the mitzvahs that we do, Shabbat, kosher, those are like you play a piano. That's how you play the instrument. But the spirituality of it and the psychology of it and the healthy component of this blueprint is absolutely ready for the entire world. And I have no doubt that it will, it will, not only that it could, that it will actually transform. I know I sound overly ambitious and overly uh, optimistic, but I really feel the time is ripe. I feel the formula is there. The only thing is missing, we haven't distributed properly. You know? so, so you think it should be? You think that these ideas should be distributed on a wide level to Jews, non-Jews, and I guess especially and those in, in the... And everything in between. And especially those in the mental health arena, whether they're there as, you know, academics and practitioners like Divi or people who are just, you know, obsessed with it like myself, we should be focused on these concepts. Well, you and Divi are already in. We need a few more. <laughs> I have like one foot in, one foot out. But let, let me ask a question of a concept because you were talking about it and I keep coming across it, but I don't, like I hear the words, I don't quite know what it means, but you spoke about it a little bit as, here is something that's unique to Hasidic philosophy. So I've come across a concept a lot that at the time of Mount Sinai, I guess prior to that, there was like the introduction to it, but time of Mount Sinai, when the Torah was given, that allowed kind of the two, the material and the spiritual to connect, which is what you're talking about, that level of to transcend the transcendence. That's spirituality and materiality and spiritual and material are actually no different. No, no as closer I, as to As Einstein divine. said, as Einstein said, E equals MC squared. Energy and matter 
are reversible. They are basically so, two so forms what, of one. So what happened at Mount Sinai? What is it talking about when it says that? I've seen this at least 50 times in different concepts. When Mount Sinai came, spiritual and material now could connect. What does it mean? It means that you can consider and think that spiritual values are ethereal and are only possible when you live in a, uh, a, an, an aesthetic lifestyle. You cut yourself away from civilization. You live on some mountain and you, can't, and you don't engage with the material world. Celibacy, maybe fasting, even self-flagellation and some self-affliction. You're basically trying to destroy the matter in order to you to be a more spiritual person. This, this was common in Judaism before Hasidus, right? It wasn't so common. There was such an option. It was not so common because Judaism was all a fact, but then there's the other option. One second. Living a very ethical, a very moral life, and not necessarily reaching very spiritual heights. You know, just be a good person. Be kind, be ethical, be uh, virtuous, etc. What, what Sinai accomplished was the fusion of these two. Like I mentioned before, spirit and matter are equally distant from God. God wants us to bring the spiritual into the material. Doesn't want us to disengage from life. Engage. Obviously, don't overindulge. Engage. Eat, drink, enjoy, pleasure, marry, love, pleasure of intimacy. All of that is all part of the divine plan. Infuse it with spirituality. Basically, spiritualize the material. And that is a big thing because most people would say, you know what? Like the scouts that Moses sent to Israel, they said, we can't go into this promised land. It's a land that consumes its inhabitants. As soon as we get involved with the stock market and with the corrupt forces of the marketplace, we won't right, be able to done. focus on spirituality. And the goal is a fusion of the two. And that is actually quite a uh, innovation. It's quite an achievement. How do you bring these two together? So it's not necessarily saying something practical that at that time of Mount Sinai is when it allowed for it, but it's that that's, or maybe it is, but that's no, the it concept. Sinai, Sinai introduced a new energy into existence that, that allows that. matter and energy to become one and not, not two different realities. Basically, your experience on Yom Kippur, the holiest moment in a synagogue, is can be as spiritual as your experience as as, as you experience on an average Thursday night in a weekday that has no particular special holiday, because she's, there's a one. This is a uniquely Torah concept. Yeah, it is because it introduces you know to use the words of the Baal Shem Tov. He says he takes a verse in the Bible that says when you will see the donkey of your enemy laden and overburdened with packages, don't ignore it. Go help that donkey, even though it's your enemy. The Baal Shem Tov interprets chamoyer, which is a donkey in Hebrew, that it means when you see the crassness of your physical and material body, and you may think of it's your enemy, because it doesn't let you be spiritual, doesn't let you focus on higher values. No, go ahead, engage with it, help it, harness it, educate it. In other words, we don't ignore the so-called animal soul. We don't ignore our animal instincts. We look to harness, transform, and elevate and refine them to support and become like partners with your divine transcendent dimension. So basically, it's bringing to the, both worlds together. Like for so example, this, for example, school, would be why in Christianity, I poverty. think if someone is married, they can't be a, like the whatever it is. They can't be a, the Pope. 
for example. Uh, With where it's Judaism, if someone's not, they can't be. Exactly, they can't be a priest, a high priest. And you know, right. in Christianity also, the, the, the meek shall inherit the earth. In Judaism, wealth is a blessing. Obviously, wealth has challenges, but material wealth can be used to great, build great things. In other words, there's a fusion of engaging with the modern and material world with technology and spiritualizing it. But it's definitely, it's definitely uniquely Hasidic. That's for sure. Look, you know, I, I, when I present this to people, I don't want to necessarily say, I want to find common denominators and say, you know what? Some of these ideas you may already have embraced. The, what I would say Hasidic philosophy does, it gives you a full picture of it all, a comprehensive picture. And that picture can be found in many schools of thought. However, there's one place where you find, I, listen, my reading and my studies and my experiences, I find that Hasidic philosophy is very comprehensive. But there are pieces of it everywhere. You know, sure. you can find it in literature, in poetry, in William Blake, and in Buddhism. So it's not like something like that is completely never heard of. I think Judaism has impacted the world more than we may know. But I heard someone uh, describe it as... Um... Was it the cut flower theory? Did we speak about it last time? The cut flower theory? I think that's what it's called. So essentially, it's a flower after it's been cut, telling you why you don't need the soil, right, to survive. Right. So you have Judaism and its influence on the world, and then all of these things that spring up from it. And then you're saying, okay, so some of those things are they going to say, well, I don't need Judaism. Yeah, but you're the soil that allowed for the flower to exist, right? Judaism introduced a lot of these these concepts. Okay. I hear it, but from a, a VC standpoint, your call to action, your your message for those listening, is that this this is something to to invest in. This is something that should be introduced, should be promoted, should be encouraged to a much broader audience. And you think it can have a profound impact on not only mental health, because you're saying mental health is kind of the new uh, the new currency. Uh, absolutely. You know, I think there's going to be a backlash, you know, after so many broken families, so much dysfunctionality, and people want to have normal homes. There's a tremendous need, and COVID has only accelerated that. It was a conversation between uh, Bill Gates and Warren Buffett, and one of them said to the other, this was before Bezos and Elon Musk were doing their thing, and these two were the two known richest people in the world. And uh, Bill Gates... Um, I think said Warren Buffett said to Bill Gates that it's interesting that we're the two richest because our skill set would be essentially useless a few hundred years ago. Your ability to, you know, with technology and to understand it, and my ability to pick companies on a stock market, you know, like those, those, those were useless. So you're you're saying also there's a there's a different one that's coming, right? With more and more things moving to energy coming from machines, these machines will sit there working while we're doing what we're doing. Just as an example, three of us are having a conversation, talking to a bunch of people. And we're not only talking to the people who are listening now, we're talking to the people who are listening in the future. And that's all happening miles apart from each other. Yeah, I'll make a prediction here. Okay, so you can have it on record. My my prediction is that um, just as there was the agricultural revolution that led to the industrial revolution, that led to the technological information revolution, we're on the verge of a spiritual revolution in the 21st century. 
Well, that's definitely happening in psychiatry because now a lot of the newest studies are on psychedelics and want, one of the famous studies bit. was on psychedelics and their capacity to produce mystical experiences. And these were psychiatrists producing this study and it wasn't even about a mental illness. It was about whether psychedelics could produce mystical experiences. And then they later showed that the improvements in depression correlated with the degree to which people had a subjective mystical experience. So there's definitely legitimacy in the works, even at a neurobiological level for there to be receptivity. Also, you were speaking about machines taking over our function and therefore our existence being more about well-being. Uh, also, in the population that I work with, you know, they're particularly sensitive to effects of social media. And we don't know if this is causative, but if you look at the suicide rates from 2000, seven to 2017, they rose in that population of uh, women ages 10 to about 20 by about almost 6, 60%. Um, so we don't know exactly what role social media plays in that, but I can tell you that when they're in a residential facility and they don't have access to social media, it's like they're in sobriety. Beautiful. So let's talk a little bit about that, about the, uh, ran quickly through the psychedelic stuff. I saw some incredible studies on it, and I guess a lot of that. Maybe explain it and explain the, um, the role as, as a therapist looking at it and a scientist studying those things, what you're seeing. Yeah, so practically speaking, as a psychiatric provider, I can use ketamine. Um, ketamine is a little different than the traditional psychedelics, but the idea is similar in that people can sort of have mind-opening experiences, subjective experiences on it, and that can be harnessed in therapy. So it, with psilocybin, which is mushrooms specifically, these were originally going to be the antidepressants of psychiatry before the drug wars came about. So it's interesting that we're essentially returning to psilocybin uh, because it's so potent and has been shown to have effect sizes in depression that you can't even compare to SSRIs like Prozac and Zoloft. And we don't know exactly what's happening. So here's an interesting example where I went to a Yale lecture on ketamine. And at that time, ketamine was more popular than psilocybin. So they didn't even really want to talk about psilocybin, even when questions were coming from the audience. But it was all about the like minutia of like what we know at the cellular level. That was like the whole thing. Uh, so there's a lot of emphasis on just understanding all of the neurobiological changes that happen. And there are many in the psychedelic experience. But what does that all mean? Right. Like this brings us back to the fundamental question. Like we could look at the neuron, but kind of like where is the mind in that? So there are so many people who are probably influenced by different spiritual cultures who are now in the mainstream psychiatric community who are much more interested in the subjective experience, like what is happening to people in these states, right? And why in these states do people all seem to come to some sort of connection to, you know, the world, to other people, right? To a so, sense so of let purpose. Me, let me slow you down a little bit because you say a lot of profound things in short sentences and super quickly. So I just want to, un I want to unpack it a little bit, make sure I, I and the others understand it. So I also like, from my experiences, I'm not, right. Like I said, I'm not a doctor. So I come at it from a, you know, an everyday person looking at it. This is, this is the way I see it. This is the way I understand it. So you have the traditional medicines and obviously, right. A lot of these things are not, uh, ketamine is legal. A lot of these things are undergoing different studies. I know Oregon recently approved um, a psilocybin therapy. But as I understand it, the general concept and why we're bringing it to this conversation 
is if someone is depressed now, and we're talking clinically depressed, then a doctor has the ability to prescribe. No one's saying someone's depressed, go grab a Prozac, right? So there's a psychiatrist that they're working today, um, gives them an SSRI, which as I understand it, what it does, it mutes the feelings, correct? So it, it numbs it, it mutes it, it, sh sh it shuts it down to some degree when it's effective, so they're not feeling that feeling. As opposed to a psychedelic, say a ketamine or a psilocybin, which does just the opposite. It so SSRIs were actually first discovered in tuberculosis patients who were not depressed. And what they found was when they took an SSRI like Prozac, they showed slight manic symptoms. So when somebody is manic, they might be hyperactive, talking quickly, have racing thoughts. So in some people, it does mute emotions more generally, but in other people, it can sort of boost their overall level of activation. And for some people that can look like improved mood, for some people, they can feel uncomfortable like that. So my point is just that the effects of SSRIs are somewhat complex. With psychedelics, what even we do when they are effective, it's something like one in five, right? Those are the studies I've seen. Um, I've heard the 30-ish percent rule. Um, so it's, yeah, one right. The num the number needed to treat successfully is around that. So not great. And uh, often and the, and the reason we're talking about some of these these psychedelics is psychedelic actually means soul manifesting. Right. right. Robert Jacobson was talking before about psychology is the study of the soul. Psychedelics is soul manifesting. So what happens on a lot of these experiences, or when when people go through this experience, ketamine or others, is that they they feel that sense of the divine. They feel so that what's attachment really, and connection too. What's really interesting about that is what we know is happening in the brain is there's something called the default network, which is where your brain settles when you're not engaged. So you know we talk about a flow state when you're engaged in an activity that's meaningful. When you're not engaged, this is the opposite. Is the opposite, but it's not. It doesn't look like rest. So when we're in default mode, our brain looks rather chaotic. So being able to uh, remove, uh, kind of silence the default network is associated with positive mental health outcomes. So like meditators are better at silencing their default network. That makes sense. So this the psychedelics are capable of doing that kind of muting the default kind of network. Kind a meditative experience. Mm -hmm. But, and it, 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 and there are also other effects that make it unique, but it's essentially kind of removing a lot of inhibition. So from a spiritual perspective, that's really fascinating because you kind of want to say, well, it's essentially uncovering what's there, right? Your natural sense of connection. And that, that's an example. Not everybody has exactly a sense of connection, but that's very common. So that's not necessarily that something new is being created by the psilocybin, but rather that it's being uncovered. So in, in your opinion, are we going to see a renaissance in that way as well? Inu Rabbi Jacobson was talking a lot about the potential renaissance or the renaissance kind of needed within the mental health community. Do you think there's a point in time five or 10 years down the road where a therapist is saying, okay, let's, I mean, I guess you work, you can work with ketamine today, right? right. So someone's struggling. And then you'll see those experiences when someone is, takes ketamine, they'll have that kind of mind expanding um, connection to the superconscious or sub or uh, God consciousness experience. 
So I'll try to keep this short. Firstly, what's beautiful about people's psychedelic experiences is it's very not specific to necessarily God, right? It often has nothing to do with religion, but it has this spiritual quality that's very universal. Whether this will revolutionize psychiatry remains to be seen. The field is definitely headed in that direction. So it's definitely going to be used to treat depression. The question is, how much are we going to be controlling it and diluting it? So even with ketamine, the nasal spray, it's not as potent. Also, a big thing with a psychedelic therapy is the value of context, guidance, and intention. You'll see that talked about in any psychedelic therapy manual. It's completely influenced by the context and the intention or very influenced by that. So if you have people coming into a lab and given some psilocybin, they're going to have a very different experience than if they're out in nature, right? So we don't know what effect that will have on how people are impacted by it. I think that one right, of the I mean, reasons- of course, the fact that you're mentioning an SSRI doesn't mean that you think if someone um, is having a bad day, they should take an SSRI, right? I mean, there's a process and there's someone well, the point with is, professionals who can prescribe it. So. Well, here, here's where, what I'm getting at. Why one of the reasons why this is a great time for spirituality to come back to psychotherapy is because we're going to need it to make the most of these psychedelic tools. Interesting. And I would weigh in, not just are we going to need it to make best use, we're also going to need it to make sure there's enough bittle and lack of abuse. Because let's be honest, if a person doesn't have a holistic approach, psychedelics can be very attractive and very sexy and not necessarily purely for healing purposes. It could be distracting, it could even be destructive. And I think it's important to recognize that ultimately psychedelics is not an end in itself. It's like any medication. And it's critical, like, you know, even in Jewish thought, Hasidism, Hasidic philosophy talks about the dangers of people who are very attracted and seduced by a spiritual experience. You talk about Nadav and Avil, the two brothers who ran into the Holy of Holies with an ecstatic, essentially, you don't necessarily call it a psychedelic experience, but it says a strange fire consumed them. And it was coming from a good place. They wanted to connect to very high spiritual levels and they ended up dying. Or the story with the four who entered the pardis, the orchard, and only one, they wanted to have a spiritual experience and only one came out intact, Rabbi Akiva. One died, basically, overdosed if you wish. One went mad and one became an apostate. So it's critical that when you're going into higher spiritual states, whether it's being induced by a, uh, by a psychedelic, by a substance, or by anything else, you need to know, really know how to travel there. Because number one is you cannot go with selfishness in mind. There has to be a lot of humility, and both by the practitioner and by the client. And secondly, it has to be part of a whole comprehensive lifestyle. You know, Rabbi Akiva and those that knew how to do it, they were able to integrate it into a life, it, it, you know, because it's very attractive. There are people, for example, who experienced with psychedelics in the 60s, besides those that OD'd and those that many became irresponsible. They couldn't have families. They were not living a, a, a life that was um, accountable. It became this like- This is very connected, right, Jacobs, to the earlier part of the conversation, which you said something introduced and said, hey, that, that spirituality is there, right? And it's there to be, um, I'm not talking about psychedelics necessarily, I'm just talking in general of spirituality, but the point is 
like you said, Hamaisa Huayikar. So that message of Chassidus, which is very unique in that way. Or, is, as, or, or as Divi said earlier, that you can be a spiritual narcissist. Sure. And you can get you can get hooked on and addicted to psychedelics as an end in itself, you know? Right. I mean, just as people are hooked on, I, I don't think it has the same kind of chemical um, addictive qualities as other drugs. Um, I first got introduced to it. But, but psychologically, by... no, it becomes a psychological dependence. You know, whenever in a bad mood, I'll just take a trip, you know? Right. Or, 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 or being excited by the spiritual transcendence. So that message, Divi, you're, you're saying you see this as clear, right? That the, what you're seeing with, with, with uh, ketamine, I don't, I don't know anyone who's worked with ketamine. I know some people who've had horrible and nearly OD'd from ketamine, but I don't know someone who's. But um, one who's... key word, it has to come with responsibility. It can't, cannot come with, with uh, relief, relieving yourself of responsibility. It comes with a responsible life. So I just want to clarify for people who are listening. I don't yeah. administer ketamine in part because I'm not a huge fan of it. Uh, I think when psilocybin is available, I you know, would be more interested in being able to provide that for people. But 100%, I think one of the advantages of introducing it professionally is that it's going to be very grounded and regulated and supported. And, um, and then we come back to connection, you know, the famous- It'll be a prescription drug like other- Yeah, like the other famous, and the famous experiment with the rats, you know, if they were alone in the cage, they OD till they died. If they were in the rat park, they used it with discretion. So it depends people, it, we're never gonna get around the fact that people still have to feel connected in their lives. Otherwise they will abuse whatever's at their fingertips. So, and the thing is that these kids that we're working with are already addicted to whatever substances they have at their disposal. And we're losing so many of them literally to suicide. So. We just have to think creatively about whatever tools we have, but it seems like in today's world, we need more potent tools. Yeah, well, I'll say this. Hasidic philosophy that we're discussing, when, treat, when used properly, will not require one ounce, not even a, a, not even a weed, or, and definitely not higher psychedelics. I'm not discussing now in medical conditions where you may need... Well, that, right, that's what we're talking about, is the medical... Uh... Yeah, no, I understand. I just want to clarify that because I don't want anyone getting coming away saying, <laughs> okay, you know what? Because some people I, right. have come to that conclusion that, you know what? The best way to learn Hasidus is by taking a little LSD or some other psychedelic and it'll help you get to another spiritual state. No, that's not well, the way it works. Th there's a letter of the Rebbe that I came across where someone asked him that question pointed and the Rebbe said um, very specifically, I mean, I can read it so that I, I'm I can familiar read with the letter, 1966, yeah. And uh, in it, he said that you know, as far as using these tools for spiritual transcendence is not at all the Jewish way. I mean, that's not, um, but he yeah. does seem to, he's, there it says, biochemistry is not my field and I can't express an opinion on the drug you mentioned, namely LSD, especially it is still new. However, what I can say is that the claim that said drug can stimulate mystical insight is not the way to attain mystical inspiration, even if it had such a property. The Jewish way is to go from strength to strength, not by means of drugs and other artificial stimulants, which have a place only if they are necessary for the physical health. I imagine by saying physical health, he's talking also psychological health. Look, like anything, just like you have any interventions, uh, like different medications that, that, that uh, balance chemicals. You know, we're not just talking about uh, painkillers. Right. We do have the concept of, of, uh, of uh, look, I, I know personally individuals 
who say to me clearly, they would never believe in God and they would not have embraced Judaism had they not taken psychedelics in the 60s. They said it was the only way for me to break through. And my response has always been the following, that no, that's, you know, just like a person goes, falls into a comatose state and the only way to revive them is through strong drugs. That doesn't mean you give strong drugs to every person. You know, that's sure. an and that's, situation. That's right. And that's what seems to be happening. Like, for example, Oregon, which was the first state to pass a law um, permitting the use of psilocybin therapy, it's not actually permitted in the state. It's what's permitted is that over the next two years, they're going to develop a framework to have practitioners you know, work, you work with imagine, people. And I'm sure on, everything you, would be guided and everything I else. Mean, as we all know, regulation is a very uh, uh, tenuous situation. It's, it's going to be a challenge because can you trust all these practitioners and all these professionals and not, that wouldn't abuse but it? But listen, you know, as, as Divi mentioned, you have people dying on the other side, right? And they're, no, they're, no, yeah. I understand. I understand. I just think that we're talking about it in a responsible way. We just got to look at the whole picture. That's all. Well, I, yeah, I think no the reason why it's being integrated into psychiatry is because the approach of just say no has been proved has proven itself ineffective. So this okay. stuff is available to people if they want to engage with it. So the question is, can we offer it in a way that is therapeutic rather than self-destructive? And that's the hope. Right. To think situations that have those less risk, more control, more guided, et cetera, et cetera. I, but I think what's important and the reason why I wanted to touch on it in this framework is, you know, certainly from, from a, a business standpoint. Right, I can tell you, you know, people who are looking at emerging emerging markets and things like this are paying careful attention to the fact that this is being studied now and the, the trials are looking very promising, et cetera, et cetera. So now what this introduces is a level of spirituality, and this is why we're having this conversation here, is that these experiences introduce a level of spirituality that therapy doesn't normally have to tackle. And that's what's so intriguing about this. If someone takes an SSRI, they don't start questioning, are they more than a human being? Someone, but, and the SSRI is, right, 30% or so effective for certain experiences. Um, PTSD, MDMA has been, has, there are certain studies that are extremely promising when it comes to PTSD. Soldiers who've been, you know, reliving traumatic experiences for decades have, have undergone treatments, guided, and seen very promising results. But then they come, they come out of that, not starting to talk a little about some of these spiritual experiences. And that becomes a question, Divi, I think is what you're addressing is, so now what is a psychiatrist or a psychologist who's been trained in this soulless methodology do with this patient who's talking about mystical experiences and it's working to help them treat from addiction? Obviously, it goes without saying that no one over here is promoting using these or using these irresponsibly or, any, or, or anything else. We, as, as Robert Jacobson mentioned, what we're talking about is if this is where it's moving to, and all of a sudden you have a patient who's, who's had a soul journey, so to speak, and has been introduced to some of these concepts, then, and you have a practitioner who's guiding them, who's been raised in a soulless methodology of practice, there's going to be a massive disconnect. And that's the yeah, That's and the question the, is how does that bridge get resolved over the next five or 10 years as this becomes more introduced into mainstream psychology? So there will be more of a need for spiritually informed practice. And the other takeaway is just that people feel are more likely to feel well when the mind is open to 
some sense of spirituality, whatever that is for them. And this, yeah. you know, Hasidus can potentially can potentially provide that for people in a very potent way. Look, uh, I think also I would say is this. I think to myself, if we had, uh, let's say, our dream fulfilled and we had the best case scenario and Hasidus had become a universal, a global household name um, affecting the critical mass as a methodology, the methodology of healing and living healthy and both preventive as well as intervention and dealing with challenges, then in that context, how much would we need medications of all sorts, whether it's psychedelics right. or not? That, you know, that's right. another point to make. I want to say one thing, one precedent. And how much do we need any of these things yeah. in those settings? And now, like we always know, there's, there's bringing up a child in a healthy way, in the best healthy way, where you want, don't want to need to depend on all of this. And then there's dealing with a situation where a person, unfortunately, has to need, needs healing and recovery. I, I just mean, want to throw in one more. Divi is talking about a 60% increase in, in suicide in a certain population, right? And those, and, right, and those are the questions. Ideally, obviously, and, 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 there's a situation also, where these things are not there. And the question is, were they, are they preventable in all cases, even if everything was the best case scenario? Right. I, want, well, I, just, wanted to, I just wanted to throw in one more thing as a precedent. In 1979, the, the Rebbe, the Lubavitcher Rebbe, spoke about TM, Transcendental Meditation, was very popular then. And he had encouraged psychiatrists, Dr. Landis, Dr. Landis and, other, and others, that they should explore TM, Transcendental Meditation, kosher style. But he made it very clear that it was not meant for people who don't need it, for people who are already pursuing it, to look for ways to make sure it's kosher, in other words, not connected to any idolatry, or any uh, paganism or anything that would be dubious or, or you know, not really purely holy. Transcendental um, meditation is where a mantra is repeated, right? Mantra is repeated. It's, it was a very focused thing, came from the East, from the Far right. East. But the Rebbe was, so in other words, you see there, and he made it clear. He said it like a medication, just make sure it's a kosher medication. Do, do it right. So, it doesn't, so anyone could, but it was made it clear that it's not meant to be originally for every person. You know, a person who's, dealing with a healthy life. I want to also say one more thing, which I always have to say. Unfortunately, the problem is not just from the side of science that has cut out and created a soulless psychology, but the problem is that the religious world as well is, a is, is also a root of issues here because they present religion and even their, their form of spirituality, which I would call distorted, in such a way that it's unappealing and people run the other direction. So we're also contending with that. So we have to find a, <laughs> we have to deal with something that both extremes and find a very healthy uh, medium where we can really find the healthiest of the spirituality. Because there are many um, very, let's call it religious Jews listening to this, and they'll say that even my I am off the wall. You know, what, what are you talking about? Traditional Judaism, put on tzitzes, put on tefillin, light candles, and keep Shabbos. And are not ready to really un understand the spirituality of Judaism and definitely don't focus on mental health properly and in many ways are contributing to the problems with a dogmatic and condescending and judgmental approach. I just want to add to that that one of our members pointed out that they're a psychologist who incorporates spiritual practices routinely. And 
I don't want to be misleading. There are many, many therapists out there who are incorporating spirituality in their practice. I think when we were talking about it, I think we were talking about general trends. Yeah, correct. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Very similar to what we spoke about last week. I think certain people got the impression or two weeks ago that we were saying that there's no one who's teaching this the right way or something like that. No, the, the, the message was more that, you know, I had grown up in the system and I, I, the way I've heard Rabbi Jacobson talk about Hasidus is unique. I'm sure he's not, he's not one in one of everyone there, but it is unique. By and large, you don't hear people talking about it the way, the way he does. And that was more of the message than saying that there's no one who does it, um, who does it in any way. I think I'd like to take a few minutes to get to the, um, the questions. Go ahead. Absolutely. So someone had two questions here for you, Rabbi Jacobson. Um, sure. Number one, you suggested Hasidic therapy sessions as something that can help to access superconscious self. And he's going back to our last conversation. To access superconscious self, to access the neshama, to heal a person. But when a person is deep down in his trauma and fully dysfunctional, he, he or she will not trust the therapist or even seek ther therapy treatments. In this, came, in this case, giving him any pleasure in life and restoring his confidence by any means is the only way to get him out of full dis dysfunction and only then can therapy start. So how can we apply chassidus for a trauma at the deepest state before a person is seeking the therapy instead of other means? I, I guess if I understand the question correctly, someone is going through, when they're in their trauma, they could be searching for anything there. I mean, it, it could be also some addictive thing seems to be what he's saying. How in that state, can you get someone's attention with this? Well, let's be honest. The same question can be applied. How do you get their attention to go to therapy, even if it wasn't Hasidic therapy? True. There are people, unfortunately, either have given up on themselves or they're so depressed and they're not motivated and they feel there's no hope that will not go anywhere for any help. That's a very big problem. It's very hard to help someone who's not ready to help themselves. This is a, a general question that every... If we, anyone had this answer, we'd have the million-dollar answer. There are many, many people who right now, maybe even listening to this, and have given up. So the only way to answer that, and this is not strictly um, the Hasidic form. The Hasidic approach is you have to always show love. You always show compassion. The door is open. Everybody goes through their ups and downs. I find that you let people know, I'm there if you need me. Um, do not hesitate. And sometimes it takes a week, a month. Sometimes it takes years. You can't force someone to go ask for help. That's the bottom line. If you're a friend to a person like that, you have to do so with kindness, love, compassion, care. By showing care, you're, sh you're validating the person. By showing that you care about them, that you're not ignoring them, you're hopefully empowering them at least with enough to say, maybe I'll peek out from my locked room or locked basement and go ask someone for, I don't know, ask for help, but go speak to someone. Just speak to someone. What do you have to lose? Just speak to someone. But many people are terrified of that. So once you can get someone out the door and sit down, I mean, I, I deal with this all the time. There's sometimes people who come here and they say, I really don't want to be here, but um, I, I was told, you know, and you, you just want to create trust because that is the key to it all. Now, the Hasidic component to this Besides what I just said, the compassion, the love, is once you're sitting down to speak, then you use different methods. 
And the Hasidic methods very often overlap with all other methods that are out there. So I'm not sure why you're focusing only on the Hasidic method. As far as like different forms of pleasure, that the only way this person is going to get out of their dark place is through exercising pleasure, I don't necessarily agree with that at all. They can be doing something that is feeding the fire, basically, and the bleeding is going worse. It's like someone who's eating poison, and you say the only way to get them out of that situation, let them eat some more poison because that's what they want. So look, we don't control other people's lives. If you're a friend to someone like that, or you yourself are in that desperate place and you feel hopeless, all I can say is light is stronger than darkness. There are people who love you unconditionally. No matter what happened in your life, this doesn't, don't write off everybody else. You may have been hurt by close people, you, by close relatives, by friends, by loved ones. But there are other people in this earth, and there is always hope. There's always something to reach out. You have a soul, like a heart that's beating inside of you. And you try every way possible to help a person get out of that dark, dark place to look for, to seek out help. It's like an addict who doesn't believe they're an addict or they don't want to go for help. This is very, very common, unfortunately. I agree with you on this one. This isn't unique to... Um... To, to Although the person may have been asking about whether it's inconsistent with halacha, like if something has to be done to give them pleasure, that's not allowed. And that may relate to just asking a rav who's well, informed know, in matters of mental health. Let's be honest. You think a person who's considering doing something not halacha is asking me a question whether they should do it or not. If they're compelled to do it, they're going to do it. I'm not condoning it. I'm not, I mean... Look, the point is, as I said, you don't want to get caught up in behavior that's feeding the problem. That's the key. You want to finally get to a place where you start healing. I would just add that today we're fortunate that there are treatment options. If a person is at a place where they can't get themselves up and out of bed to a therapist's office, then there are higher levels of care. And the family is the one with the skin in the game. So they have to make it happen. Yeah. In, uh, yeah. I'll talk from, from my experience. In the big book of AA, it deals with this, right? It's one of the chapters deals with, um, I think it's called like when dealing with addicts or when something like that is how do you deal with someone who it's very clear to you that they're an addict. And I had a, you know, in my case, I remember speaking to someone and I saw he was struggling. I saw he wasn't doing well. And I asked him, I said, when you, um, when you're overwhelmed, what do you do? And he said, I watch porn. So I said, have you considered that maybe you're addicted? He said, no, because I actually have a bet with a friend that we're not going to watch porn for 100 days straight. I said, what's the plan on 101? Do you need to borrow my laptop and my computer and everything else? Like, what's, what's happening on day 101? So he said, I actually haven't thought about that question. So I said, have you considered that you may be a porn addict? He said, I don't think it exists. What, and, porn or addict? Well, no, porn Which addict. One? Porn doesn't exist. Like being addicted doesn't? to it. It doesn't think it exists. So, okay. so I just, I shared a little bit about my experience, right? And at that moment, I'm like, what are you talking about? You know, and I think I said to him, I said, did you stash your cocaine somewhere also? And say, you're not going to use it for a hundred days. So he said, no, I don't like, no, I don't use cocaine. So I said, exactly. You're only counting down the things that you have a problem with. Only the things that you have a problem with, are you figuring out when you're going to use it, when you're not? It's a telltale sign of an addiction. What have you done to try to stop? I pushed a little bit. I wasn't aggressive, but to me, it was so clear that this guy was, first of all, I noticed before the conversation that he was reeling, number one. Number two, that he wasn't in a good place. Number two is um, when I asked him what he does when he, over, when he was overwhelmed, he told me specifically what he does. So to me, it's like, 
you know, I want to, I want to throw all this stuff at him and talk about how I used porn and talk about how I recovered from porn and talk about you know, all of these things. But there was nowhere to go. I tried a few times, there was nowhere to go. So what I said to him, where I left the conversation, this is mostly based on, hey, I said, listen, you know, I don't know scientifically whether there is porn addiction or not. I can just tell you from my experience that my life was not doing very well when um, I was watching porn regularly and learning how to navigate a life without it has been one of the most important decisions I've made and it's made every other area of my life a lot better. So I said, if you, it ever feels like it's too much for you, you can call me, you have my number and I'll never tell you I told you so. I'll never rub it in your face or anything else. If you need at any point in time, please call me. It took about a year, year and a half for him to call me and whatever, he was in a bad place. He was in a bad place by the time he called me, but you can imagine the, the, the way that conversation went. There was nothing I could have said on the first conversation to encourage him to take a step forward. There was nothing I could have suggested on the second conversation that he wouldn't have listened to. And that's, that's where the, uh, like what AA recommends in terms of, I'm not saying it's, 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 it's recommended for everyone, but certainly in terms of an addict, if there isn't, a threat of physical violence to someone else or a threat of harm to themselves, then you allow the person to get to a place of more desperation and come from them. And it's a much easier person. And in AA, we talk about it all the time that, uh, you know, there's the gift of desperation and someone needs that in order to, to take those steps. So I don't think that question is unique to Chabad Hasidis or Hasidic philosophy. It's how do you right. deal with anyone who's struggling and how do you put the light in front of them? The second question he asked when I, I haven't uh, come across, but he, he asked about this distinction between the sinner and an inus. And what is, you know, does an inus, he references somewhere in Tanya that an inus doesn't have to do tshuva or something like that. So he says, no one can say this as far as I know, it touches on the subject of inus can clarify this. Well, inus is someone that's forced to do something. So he's calling um, out someone, an abused, traumatized person who as a result of the trauma um, goes on to do whatever they do. I mean, you know, Divi spoke about that at the beginning. The attachment. It sounds rupture. like it sounds like the same questioner. He's asking, basically yes, he trying to question. justify. Look, let me put it this way: an oynus yeah. means yes. I understand. If somebody was uh, raped, God forbid, or some other way violated, and as a result they have sexual issues, and they find it difficult to control themselves. I mean, uh, we're not looking here to blame anybody. This isn't about trying to point fingers or, uh, or, or establishing anybody's guilt. That's not what we're addressing here. We're looking to help each other. So if a person, for example, and I dealt with this unfortunately more than once, women, men who end up behaving in very sexually unhealthy ways. I don't want to go into details, but you cl clearly can, 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 uh, can trace it to a childhood where their sexuality was violated. And now they're either go one extreme or the other extreme total promiscuity or total celibacy and, and back and forth. So I'm not here to blame them and say, hey, how could you behave like that? What's the matter with you? We're looking here to help each other. We love each other. So to continue the pattern of hurting yourself, which is what happens when people are violated or in some ways abused, they continue sometimes to abuse themselves. Their people actually have pleasure of hurting themselves. And especially, you know, just like people cut themselves in other ways that you hurt yourself because you loathe yourself, you're feeding into that narrative, which has hurt you. So instead of looking at it as, okay, 
are you doing, are you allowed to do it or you're not allowed? That's not the question here. The question is, how do we stop the bleeding? How can we help someone to stop hurting themselves? You know, sexuality is your sacred right. Why should you allow yourself to be used by anybody? Just because you got used to it or because you feel some pleasure by being hurt or by being used or dominated. So we want to help someone get away from that and find an alternative. We're not talking about deprivation. We're talking about healthy alternatives. As we began this program, healthy attachments instead of unhealthy. How many people right now are pursuing unhealthy attachments, whether it's same-sex attraction or opposite sex? But it's coming from not a healthy place, meaning I'm desperate for love and I'll get it anywhere I can. And especially a love that doesn't have commitment, a love that, that, that is not part of a whole holistic, bigger picture. There are people doing this. And I can, of course, we can explain it. And of course, we can, I don't want to call it justify. We can understand the roots of it. But we want to change that and so slowly transfer that unhealthy attraction to be attracted to a healthy person and build a healthy love. Is that work? Yes, it's going to take work. So I think that should be our tone instead of uh, just, we're not looking to justify, we're not looking to uh, criticize. <laughs> I, think, I think you understood, the, I, I think I didn't understand the question when I was reading it, but in your answer, I think you understood it better than I did. I mean, that's what it seems like. It, it brought me to something I was thinking about earlier, but I forgot to mention, there was a study from, um, I think it was done by a couple of, like, in, I think it was in Harvard or done by a couple of Harvard grads about the connection between growing up religious and addiction to pornography. And there seemed to be a correlation between the religious guilt and, um, and getting uh, drawn to pornography. And I see this a lot. It's, it's much harder in recovery to work with someone who has to introduce them to the spirituality of the 12 steps if they've had a religious background. In the no. long run, it's better because there's a much richer understanding. But at the beginning, there's a lot of blocks. And, and Nelly, don't forget to mention there's also religious addiction. Right. So there's porn addiction and religious addiction. They're not that far apart. I had, I'll give you an example. I had someone I was working with in program, a religious kid who was very addicted to pornography for, for, for a long time. I'm, I'm laughing because of the, the questions. So he calls me one day and, you know, after he's months of sobriety and then he decides he's ready to start dating. So he starts dating and, you know, he calls me one day and he says, I was on a date, third or fourth date with this girl. I really like her. I'm thinking maybe I'll propose to her at some point. And um, I, I couldn't, like, I felt like I couldn't keep my hands off her. Like I, not, he's like, and he started talking about Sherman Aguilla. And I said, listen, I said, from a religious standpoint, like you gotta go to rabbi from a religious standpoint. I said, from an addictive, from like an addiction standpoint, I said, it's a miracle that you're able to feel feelings for a human being and not a picture, <laughs> right? Like that, from that standpoint, we're talking about progress. Now you're layering in all this religious stuff into this, this is, like this is progress. You're 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 attracted to a real human being, not pixels on a on a computer. What you actually do, go talk to your rabbi about. But these, but having a sense of guilt for sitting across from someone and wanting to touch it is not as wanting to touch them is not the same as sitting in front of a computer and wanting to watch pornography again. It's not it's an addictive impulse. And that getting those two messages kind of getting crossed and him seeing it as one kind of like guilty experience for the sexual drive only you know, you made his me, whole recovery more, more challenging. Ellie, you remind me of the woman, the mother comes running to the rabbi, says, my, my, my son went crazy. He says, why? What's he doing? She says, he's eating chazer and dancing with shiksas. He's dancing with shiksas and he's eating pit pork. 
So the rabbi said, that's not crazy. If he was uh, dancing with, with pigs and consuming <laughs> human beings, that would be crazy. <laughs> right. that's, that's called the Yetzirah. Well, right. just in a, a broader sense, bringing this to eating disorders a little bit, people always have, often have the feeling like they could choose to do differently, they could just eat. And often in mental health, this question comes up of choice. But when a person is engaging in something self-destructive, we're better off assuming that they're doing the best they can. Because what use is it to assume that they're to blame? And who are we to judge? Right, I think like the questioner, and I think I was, the, the whole questioner was coming from like a guilt for his innocence in relation to his action, when that's not the framework at all. Like it has nothing to do with that. Is it better for the person to do those things or not better for the person to do these things? They can do whatever they want or not do whatever they want, but yeah, it's, it's, it's more sad. of those. It's, it's, it's because very much part of the religious upbringing, guilt is such a powerful force that, that haunts the whole experience. It's demoralizing. And as the Alter Rebbe says in Tanya, the rule, anything that's demoralizing is coming from the evil side. Unless it's motivating. If it's motivating you to grow, you know it's coming from a good place. If it's demoralizing you and make you feel like a shmata, make you feel worthless, it can be coming from a positive place. Right. And with the religious undertones, it usually could. And for that, and I've seen this also where people want to say, okay, now I have some sort of, in, I'm in recovery, forget forget the, the words he's using, but we'll talk about like, okay, now I'm entitled to do something, right? I had a really bad day. I had a massive loss. Something terrible happened. A, a, a friend of mine just relapsed after his right. mother passed, right? So in that sense, like, oh, I have, I have a good excuse now to relapse. Yeah, you had a good excuse before your mother passed also. You had a hell of a childhood, but this has nothing to do with excuses or rationalizations. It has to do with what's the life someone wants. So yeah, that's where the religious can... Uh, the, the, the religious background can, at the beginning of recovery, create more challenges and like more of an uphill battle. But I found for myself, like it was much more difficult than at the beginning. But once I was able to um, get past that initial resistance, then I had a wealth of um, kind of information to draw on and things yeah. that I can uh, now start connecting dots that turned out to be an asset. But at the beginning, it's... Uh, a little bit of a liability. Divi, can you uh, elaborate a little bit on um, attachment rupture? Um, of all so people, there's a YouTube video. There's a YouTube video. Uh, you can Google it. It's like two minutes or something. And essentially they have a baby. It's a little experiment. They have a baby in a high chair. And the mother, it's called the still face experiment. So the mother's the keeping experiment? still face. Still face. Experiment. Still face. So the mother's keeping a still face. So the baby does her thing, you know, babies try to get their mothers to smile. So they start, start squealing and making little adorable noises and the mother's just staring at it. So in a matter of like 30, 40 seconds, the baby goes from making cute noises to getting like flailing, getting agitated, squealing, and then looking like they're having a full blown meltdown. And then the mother starts to engage again and the baby's happy. So the idea here is that the actual process of attachment as it relates to psychology is this process of being held in mind by the mother's mind. So the baby learns that they have a mind and the mother has a mind that appreciates their own mind. And our minds develop in that context of a healthy attachment. So we, we can't develop alone. 
So that's a complex environmental system that can be uh, that that can have ruptures at any place and any time, and it can be extreme or it can be very subtle. It doesn't have to be the mother, but this example gives you an idea. So what happens to the child when there's a still face? There's no no reaction to their right. So the so there's essentially mental chaos because we need to know that we are of value and that gives us clarity right like when we have the sense that we belong we have value we are known we can sort of relax into our own skin and think clearly if we feel like there's nobody in the world who has our back our mind goes into a state of panic so as, as, as well as our emotions right our whole mental, our whole inner world, essentially, right? Um, so attachment rupture is kind of a terminology that refers to the ways in which there are breakdowns in this process. Yeah. Interesting. And, and, and what you're talking about, what's so and fascinating is that- And if it's sustained, and no if it's sustained, yeah. Ellie, if, and if it's sustained, not just a one-time thing, you could imagine how the rupture begins to grow. Right, no, no one would consider that a major traumatic event, right? They'd walk into a therapist, always say, what happened to you? And he said, well, when I was one years old, I made a silly face and my mom just sat there. Right. Oh, one time. <laughs> no, well, no, well actually, it. the Freudians really appreciated these kinds of traumas and took them very seriously. And we know that in some ways, like you said, Rabbi Jacobson, if it's repeated, that kind of complex trauma can really wear down the psyche even more than a major single event. So you say it can yeah. be destabilized for lengthy periods of time just by not feeling in sync with another human being. Right. And that's being where we come to the humility to and the therapist. One of the goals in the therapeutic relationship is for that transparency of mind to take place again. So if the therapist's mind is full of clutter and ego and distractions, the patient is not getting a reflection of their own mind in the therapist's mind. So we're unable to sort of recreate that attachment in the room. Okay, so is the, that's some of the, the work that you're doing with someone with severe attachment rupture is to recreate kind of healthy, healthy attachment with them. Right, and this is actually based on mentalization-based therapy, which is a fairly cutting, age, a cutting edge therapy, more popular in Europe, but it's targeted to very difficult to treat populations. But the ideas are very simple. Robert Jacobson, this question is for you, I think. So a gentleman is wondering if when the soul comes down here, this would be called the ultimate attachment rupture. Did we outgrow Hashem, so to speak? Very good question. The question is even broader than that. In, the, in Kabbalistic and Hasidic terminology, the mere fact, what we call the Tzimtzum Harishin, that God concealed his presence in order, his conscious presence in order for us to emerge as an independent consciousness is actually the first trauma of all traumas because that creates a dissonance. The concealment has a good intention. It's like a parent that may conceal himself or herself from the child so the child should discover the parent. But imagine if the parent conceals themselves so well that the child stops seeking, just to, to segue from what was just said. So in other words, the goal was not to create detachment, the goal was that God wanted to create a reality where we would help initiate and generate attachment, that it wouldn't just be a one-way street, God reaching to us, but we also reach to God. 
but it can also go wrong where the the recipient the child in that sense sees this as a detachment birth is a manifestation of that so-called um, disconnect because the soul in heaven is connected to its source it's like a fish in water completely submerged think of a fish in water you talk about attachment it's constantly attached to its life source so the soul is completely connected to its source it now comes down into a hostile and and angry world where the soul forgets what it was taught in its mother's womb which gives it all the resources consciously forgets and now the soul has to contend with a world that is very selfish duplicitous corrupt and even people growing up in healthy homes have to deal with a lot of challenges imagine an unhealthy home so yes birth is a form of i don't want to use the word rupture i would like to use more of the concealment more of a that creates a dissonance but all is not lost because as we open up atanya what does he say that when the soul comes down to earth it's it's given a shvur a shvur is an oath but shvur also comes from the word empowerment it is sated it was it is it is filled up with all the resources it will need to deal with these challenges but you have to access them so a healthy home nurturing home validating loving everything divi said about a parent that uh, that pays attention to his child to his or her child validates and definitely doesn't critique and constantly undermines that creates we'll call it the the a healthy garden so the flowers can now blossom if unfortunately a child is deprived of that it's like depriving a flower for, of water and what do you think happens it withers but it's never all lost because the soul never dies let's make this clear the soul never dies it can go into concealment like the innocent inner child can go in concealment it can feel you may feel that you don't have connection but it could always be rebuilt and that's vital in every healing and recovery the belief and the absolute conviction that you're not damaged goods and and permanently hurt you could rebuild you could reconnect so that's the process so birth is on one hand a another so-called concealment because once you cut the umbilical cord a child is no longer protected in its mother's womb but now comes the hard work of making sure you create the womb in in a in an emotional and psychological sense all right jacobson someone asked that you clarified the term you said a little earlier uh, religious addiction <laughs> <laughs> How did he know it's one of my favorite topics? <laughs> um, okay, well, look, what is addiction? Addiction is where something controls you instead of you controlling it. You become the slave, and whether it's the object, whether it's a substance, whether it's a behavior, whether it's a person, whatever that is controlling you, and you look at it like a crutch, and it becomes something that you turn to for your own relief and so on. So it could be drugs, it could be alcohol, it could be gambling, it could be sex. It can be It's a higher power of sorts. Uh, yeah, but it's a lower power. Addiction. Yeah. Now, I it said it's a higher religion. power for that person. It's their higher power. It could be religion. For example, if a husband and wife are not getting along with each other, God forbid. So instead of sitting down and talking about it, they say, "You know what? We have to become more religious." You know, you're going to I'm going to go to the mikveh a few extra times. You're going to put on more 
you're going to dive them longer. And, and, they, and when you say to them, did you guys try to talk to each other? No, we just decided to be more kosher. What, what, what is going on? There's nothing wrong with being kosher. But you're, you're forgetting, you're replacing the work that you need to do with escaping into religion. Even when the Jews stood at, 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 the, the, at, the, at the sea and the Egyptians were pursuing them, and one group of Jews decided, let's pray, God said, no, don't pray. I told you to move forward. So yes, we need prayer, we need religion, we need faith, we need commitment, we need tradition, but we also need to work on ourselves. Religious addiction, when religion replaces the, 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 the you, your responsibility, and you're looking at it as a, some type of magic panacea, and, and replaces your work that you need to do in repairing or healing or growing. So religious, that's just one form of it. There are many other forms where people just instead of like, instead of like loving your child, you'll say, Oi, what look what happened to my child? They're not from anymore. And they just be, be you know, look, look, look at you. You just, you're, you're a low life. You're nobody. You became not from. What about love? It's your child. The child is unconditionally your child, no matter how they behave. So this is where religion replaces love. That that becomes a major distortion. So religious addiction is often a crutch that people run to, and they try to escape, and they're not dealing with their issues. Again, I'm not in any way uh, disparaging commitment and religion, but it has to be a healthy form of religion. What I always like to say is health, a healthy person brings you closer to God. An unhealthy person is not closer to God. And an unhealthy, dysfunctional person that hides behind religion is sometimes worse than a dysfunctional person that doesn't have religion. You know, one more form of it would be obnoxiousness. There's a concept of novel Torah. You're an obnoxious person, but you're using Torah to justify it. For example, the get abusers, people who refuse to give a get to their wives. And they dress it up in all kinds of religious excuses. Or people who are, you know, they're very religious, but when it comes to simple menschlichkeit, they can, they can, they can behave in ways that are unethical, steal, rob, and so on. But no, when it comes to kosher, they're the highest standard. This is all called a very big distorted, I don't know if it's called religious addiction or distorted religion or corrupt religion. But it definitely doesn't help. Let's put it that way. Someone over here asked uh, how we make spirituality within psychology to be more relevant to the world. And I just want to add to that. I've always been fascinated by the fact that so many people respect Viktor Frankl's work on almost any top 100 list of the most important books of the last century, you'll see his book, but you see very few therapists trained in, in logos therapy. I mean, many more people are reading um, Viktor Frankl's work, but many more people are practicing Sigmund Freud's work. I can speak to that a little. Existential therapy is taught in all, I think, most schools, and I think every psychotherapist practice is informed by it. I think it's a little hard to do existential therapy on its own, but it works really well in complement with other modalities. And I was actually thinking about existential therapy in anticipation of this talk. In Can you, you define know, existential therapy? Uh, so that's the broader term for uh, Viktor Frankl was one of the leading thinkers in existential therapy, but it includes other psychologists. Um, and it's essentially based on the idea that, right, we all seek purpose, meaning. So, right, CBT focused on thoughts, 
Right. Well, once you go to purpose meaning, aren't you talking about something like spirituality? Aren't you automatically? So it's it gets right. So it gets really yeah. It it gets it lends itself to spirituality very quickly, right? But it's Viktor Frankl and they uh, some of the leading um, existential therapists of today, like Irvin Yalom. Uh, he's not a theist or a religious person. Um, so it doesn't necessarily go together, but it, it can go together really beautifully, right? Uh, like how, the how idea could it not, I understand how it cannot go together with theism or religion, but how does it not go together at all with spirituality and just something more? How do you even use the word meaning and purpose without that? Well, it, it can be as mundane as a person having clarity about their life goals, meaning in their relationships and their work. I don't practice existential therapy on its own. I think I'm influenced by its ideas, but have more to learn. Um, so I don't know how much detail I could go into, but I think the focus is on, for example, facing life and death, right? Like encouraging a person to, in a situation of anxiety, confront their fears of death. So that would be in the spirit of existential therapy and not necessarily be spiritual. Right, understood. But when, when someone talks at least about the title of the book, Man's Search, like, Man Search for Meaning, and what Viktor Frankl spoke about was how in the concentration camps, if I remember his book correctly, he saw that the people who survived were the ones who were able to find some meaning. So in his, in his own personal life... And he actually sees religious Jews. He uses that as his main example. I didn't remember that. And he also uses examples like finding music in the camps. So right. that was a, a right. source of meaning. I mean, he meant I, even for I, himself, right? Wanting to bring this idea to the world and uh, being witness to an experiment that could never be ethically conducted. But he's sitting there witness to it and he's watching how people are dying and living based on how much meaning they can find. Well, well, I can tell you from my experience, limited experience, I actually use this um, and I've seen real results. When someone comes to you with any issue they may have, um, if you can help them identify a passion, a hobby, you mentioned music, art, obviously spirituality, uh, be, uh, kindness, some cause where they have passion, you right away are channeling some of their energy, including their negative energy, into something that is more transcendent and therefore is healing. It, obviously, it may not work only on its own, but as soon as you can get somebody away from total negative thinking into, you know what, every day I'm going to help a special child. You know, I'm talking about suggestions I've actually suggested to people. Go take a walk with a Down syndrome child or other special children, just an example. This tends to begin to uh, generate, um, literally, I would even say chemicals, in addition to uh, a certain excitement where you really feel you're making a difference, it builds confidence. At the end of the day, you go to sleep, not as a total failure. Look, I've done something today. You've shown love, you've received love. So anywhere you can channel somebody to do something that has higher meaning than their own needs, you're already going into a very much better place. Obviously, I don't want to be simplistic. Every person is different. 
But I remember seeing actually some very powerful notes, handwritten notes from the Rebbe, Lubavitcher Rebbe to individuals who wrote to him about their problems. He says, you wrote me a long letter telling me everything that's wrong in your life, but I don't see anything that you're doing to help somebody. And the Rebbe wasn't trying to be insensitive. He was trying to point out your focus is completely about self-consumed. What, what are you doing to help? Because as soon as you can change that mindset a bit, you're already bringing fresh air into the picture. And this is the number one recommendation to an addict, not an addict who walks in for the first time, but someone who's in the process, has achieved some sobriety and is struggling in a trigger, will be to call someone who's, who's struggling and get out of your own head. That's the recommendation to everyone. Right. The, the, the message always is, service keeps me sober. That's, the, that's how I started doing things like this. It was just that, that message constantly, if I can think about what might be useful to the world, what might be useful to someone else, I'm less likely to watch porn. It's that, that simple. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The less you consume yourself, the, the more you consume with others, the less you consume with yourself. And yeah, it's, it's, I, don't know, I don't know that it's a relevant piece of advice on like day one when someone's like, you know, struggling back against the wall, desperate, there's, there's no room for someone else, but I've, it's definitely the, um, the way to maintain sobriety. There's no question to me. So what is day one? What is the best way to deal with day one? Uh, <laughs> right, day one, it's, it, depends, it, it, it depends if it's day one or day one, meaning it depends if they've identified that they have an issue or they don't. And we spoke about that before. So the real question is, does someone have the willingness to, what I find, I'm talking about addiction. I'm not talking about, you know, others and Divi obviously will, um, will want to chime in. But from an addiction standpoint, if someone has the willingness, there's something to work with. And then the focus really is on giving them hope. Because oftentimes when someone has the willingness, but they've been beaten up so much by life, they've lost hope. So the first thing we want to do when someone walks in fresh into the room, so if they've walked into a meeting, that, yeah, sometimes their wife gave them an ultimatum and that's what got them in there. But 90 something percent of the people walked in there because they themselves were feeling desperate. So they already have the willingness to, to change something, but they're not totally tapped into their hope. And that's day one is, okay, how do you give the person themselves a little bit of hope? And oftentimes it's sharing one's own story and having them realize that no one who's in this group of people didn't have that day that this person's having right now. Otherwise no. they wouldn't be part of this group. If, if, if I Entry to the club a... comes, from, comes this way. You know, something just made, gave me a thought. If I could throw out this question, I'd love to hear what you and the Divi and everyone has to say, really. How much does showing love, care, and compassion play a role, even when someone's kicking and screaming and not willing to hear it or give it and just continues to remain addicted? Does it really reach a place that maybe takes time, but ultimately will touch someone? Just pure, pure unconditional love, compassion, just showing that you really care. Even if you don't have any advice for them, how much of a, you know, we, we know with mothers and parents, as was explained, there that that healthy attachment has tremendous it's, impact. It's huge. It's amazing to see the human spirit. Uh, people are very open to new attachments, as closed as they may seem. You'd think like it has to be a parent, but you could be coming into this person's life and they're twenty-one and 
they can open up to you and form a real bond. Like real, there can be real love. And that is hugely powerful. I mean, of course, spiritually, but physiologically, there are all these feel good chemicals that come along with an exchange of love. No doubt about that. Empathy, empathy. Yeah. People aren't and coming to, to meetings for advice. In fact, the, the format in a meeting is to go around the room. Some, some meetings will go in a more formal way, one person to the next, and either choose to speak or pass. Others will be more informal and some will just start talking when the other one finishes. But no one's commenting, no one's giving them feedback, no one's giving them advice, no one's giving them guidance. The most that'll happen is after the meeting, someone will walk over and say, are you okay if I comment on something you said? But in that setting, someone may talk for three to four minutes and no one's, you know, no one's piping in and say, oh, I did this then, I did this then. It's no feedback. No guidance, no advice. That's the format. So you say, so, so what, what are you getting from there? What are you getting from a group where you sit down and talk and no one's talking acceptance, back? Validation, exactly. Acceptance. It's just non-judgmental acceptance. The challenge with that is that people can sense if it's authentic. So. Oh, you well, could. You can absolutely that's feel That's actually good. <laughs> it has to be love, right? And with uh, just to speak to the step one with mood disorders and eating disorders, it can be a little more complex because it's really hard to get motivated in depression. And with eating disorders, they're often the people who are going to be first to volunteer to go help somebody at the, you know, as a oh, distraction from right. taking care of themselves. So it depends on the individual and the situation. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Wow. Very interesting. Are you getting a lot of questions, Ellie? Are there a lot of questions no, coming in? There's someone asked here, which I, I'd actually want you to read the question because I feel like there's a question behind the question and I, I don't want to put my words on it. But uh, if, if do you see the Q&A section, if you click on it. I, I'm too distant from my computer to see it. Can, why don't you just read it word for word? I'll read it word for word. I feel like I'm going to miss something. I'll read it word for word. How do you value life? It seems that the general way of society is to not value life. So first of all, I want to say this question was asked anonymously. None of the other questions were asked anonymously. So okay. that stuck out to me. How do you value life? It seems that the general way of society is to not value life. Lots of people consume things that are detrimental to the body. And the way of society is also not to feed yourself mentally and emotionally healthy things. So the way of society is not to value life. How do you value life and start giving a damn? You want to speak, Divi? You want me to speak? Who? Ellie, is this directed it. to anyone or no but i feel okay. something in that question that i like feel wants to be addressed it may just need a hug and not a okay response. Uh, listen okay. let me let me, let me for whoever asked that question let me begin yeah let me begin with a uh, a cosmic and personal hug um and that's that look the story i told earlier about that woman birth is god saying you matter honestly i speak now with all in all my journeys of life and everything I've read and everything I've experienced. And I've read not just Jewish sources, other sources, psychology, spirituality, within Judaism, outside of Judaism. I've never come with, to, with a, to a better answer than the beginning of the Bible, the beginning of the Torah, that the first time the human being is described, not described as an intellectual creature, as an emotional creature, as a social creature, as, a, uh, as any of that described in this very cryptic and mystical spiritual way. Human being created in the divine image. You're a piece of God. Now, I, I'm using God intentionally, even though I know God is a dirty word for some people. But let me put it this way. 
You're not just another piece, negligible entity. You are godly. If God is important and God is immortal, you are immortal. So what the Torah is telling us, the single most important thing, you want to know the true value of life? No, it's not based on how strong you are, how beautiful you are, how many people like you on Facebook or anywhere else. It, it's, it's something that is unconditional. It's your birthright that you were born as an indispensable and irreplaceable entity. Even if there are 8 billion people on the planet, you and only you can accomplish something that you need to accomplish. No one else can do it. I don't know if there's a better answer than that because everything else, you know, you could always find a replacement. You know, 8 billion people. I mean, who's really kids? It's like grains on, this, on a beach. One grain of sand, what significance does it have? But when you realize that it's not quantity, but it's quality, and when your mother and father hold you and embrace you from the youngest age and tell you, you are that person, a gift from a higher place, you're a divine entity, that no one can ever take that from you. As a matter of fact, the founding fathers recognize that. That's why they said all men are created equal. They knew you had to use the word created. They could have said all men are born equal. All men are equal. All people. I would like to use people so we shouldn't misunderstand. All people. Men, women, children, everybody. What were they saying? Once it's a God-given, it's a created, you were created, no one can take that from you. No one can come and say, you know what? You thought you were equal, but no, the majority decided you're not equal. You're inferior. You're a minority. And the key is how can you embrace that message that it should resonate with you? Which I believe the Rebbe, Lubavitcher Rebbe, was once asked, what's his favorite prayer? He said, Moda'ani, the morning simple prayer that every child, every man and woman can say, thank you for returning my soul to me. That gratitude, that recognition that you are a soul who's returned. Every morning, your contract was renewed. There's a vote of confidence. That can never be taken from you. So even if our parents, unfortunately, don't ratify, don't endure, don't validate that, it's still yours. To me, if you can get to that point and, can, and have that resonate in people's hearts and souls, you've developed what you're asking for, the true value of life, the true value of your life and its sanctity, and that you are not negligible. And every move you make, every decision you make matters for now and forever. That's my best response to that question. So uh, someone once told me that the, uh, every question has the answer. So he said, the way of society is not to value life. And how did he arrive there? He said, the way of society is also not to feed yourself mentally and emotionally healthy things. So I guess the way to value life is by feeding yourself emotionally and mentally healthy things. Well, you know, when you value Hopefully yourself... this was emotionally, mentally, and hopefully this yeah. evening was emotionally, mental and healthy. I'll tell you an exercise that I did that had a profound impact on me. It was from the book. It was a book by Patrick Carnes. Patrick Carnes is the uh, psychotherapist who introduced the concept to the world of there being an addiction to sex and by extension, addiction to pornography and so on. And in one of his workbooks, he does this, um, an exercise where he puts 24 adjectives in front of you. And he says to describe one's parents, describe the relationship or a primary caregiver or something like that. I remember it's a father, mother, or primary caregiver. And within those 24, there are some positive, some negative, and circle the six of the 24 that match your experience the most. 
And they can be something like caring and distant, um, punishing and loving, whatever, right? You can have different words. So you choose those six. And then later on, it says, it asks you to think about your relationship or your um, uh, idea of your higher power and categorize, is it a, a present higher power, a punitive conditional kind of higher power, a non-existent one, so on. And the purpose of the exercise is to demonstrate that our belief of God didn't come from some profound, profound theological study where we've looked through, you know, Kairach, we've looked through all the religions of the world and then decided that this is the one and we came, okay, this is my view of God. He said, it's quite simple. Your view of God is your view of your primary caregiver. So if they were loving and attentive and, attentive and present and non-conditional, then you'll believe that God is all of those things. And if there was some sort of hybrid, which is the case with most of us, where on the one hand, they're caring, but on the other hand, sometimes they're not there at all. So then there'll be this feeling that they're non-existent or they care about the big things and not the little things. And what that did is it allowed me to relax around my, um, around some of these beliefs. They feel, they feel like facts. They don't feel like beliefs. They feel like deeply entrenched facts. For me, like certain facts that I had, you know, like self-esteem shattered and believing I was disgusting, believing I was weak and stuff that permeated the essence, like felt like it was who I was. It was no one who can disagree with those things. But some of these, that one, I mean, it was 10 years ago, I did this workbook probably, but it had a profound impact on me because it just, it shook some of those ideas and said, hey, maybe I can, maybe I'm wrong about some of these things. They seem so fixed. They seem so strong. So here he's saying like, I don't value life. No one values life. I can't value life. Like it feels like some of these beliefs feel like facts and starting to shake it a little bit and realize that they're not such deeply helpful. Like they're not such truths. It's, the first person who was responsible to take care of you had a much bigger impact on the way you view the world than you otherwise thought. And if you had someone else, you would think differently. And that can be changed. Those ideas, it was, you weren't born that way. You weren't born thinking you were an idiot. That came, I, I wasn't born thinking I was weak or disgusting. That came through programming. So once I was able to view it as that and to see like, hey, my view of God is just like my view of who my primary caregivers were, I was able to start looking at it in a different lens, it didn't have that same, it didn't feel like a fact anymore. And that was uh, a big change for me, being able to turn my facts into beliefs. And once they were beliefs and beliefs can be changed when they're facts, facts can't be changed. Good. Divi, final thoughts. And then I wanna, I wanna end with a question to Rabbi Jacobson, cause he started on a topic and I wanna make sure we go there. Sure, well, attachment a was a time, bigger theme than I thought going. it would be, but it seems to be that- It was, the a, it was a, huh? a short pause. Like you oh. went from, from silent to talking silent. Okay. I said that attachment has been a bigger theme than I was expecting. But the grandest ideas do come back to the simplest things. Right. And we want to be loved and connected and held and known and seen. And in some ways, addiction is a substitute attachment system. And spirituality is a resilient attachment system uh, on the grandest scale. And thinking about that, I think helps just frame this whole discussion in a really beautiful, real emotional way. Beautiful. So beautiful. Rabbi Jacobson, what you, you said at one point in this conversation that if you were speaking to venture capitalists, 
you would say that this is the area to invest in and there would be an, an ROI. So I want to hear the pitch. What, what is the pitch? What is the, what is the investment needed? What is the ROI? <laughs> well, Look, I, 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 um, I, I wasn't prepared for that, but <laughs> here's, here's the advantage of three hour conversations. Here's the advantage is by the time someone's got this far, they're already invested. They're already, they're already in. So most people are never going to hear this. Here you I have like you your choice audience. This is the far bringing at three, four in the morning. The suckers all went home. <laughs> Understood very clearly. Very clear. You got the, it, it, it's an excellent question. The only thing I audience. can't do, the only thing I can do completely is give you a full budget. You know, what it's going to cost and what will be the actual ROI. But I will say, I think something that will be quite, quite enticing. Okay. To me, the commodity of the future is not oil. It's not technology. There's all valuable commodity is going to be the health, the mental, spiritual, and emotional health of human beings. Because as we live longer and technology provides us with more comforts, we're going to have more challenges and so on. So that, that, I don't want to go into detail on that. That Clear. I think I can, yeah. So the need is there. The market is there because it's really dealing with the entire world. Look, COVID reminded us rudely how this is, no one's immune. Doesn't matter how wealthy you are. It doesn't matter how many homes you have. No matter how, even if you have private jets, it, you know. So it's really go. the market is everybody. Um, the, the question really is how this is packaged. What is, what's the product? Let's put it this way. What's the formula that needs to be replicated? So my understanding, based on my experience and my history and my research, we'll call it research and due diligence, is that there is a formula. The formula is based, obviously, on a very profound understanding of the human psyche and soul, like what makes us tick, understanding the diversity that people are not the same. So even though we all have a heart and we have a brain and we have a liver, we all have certain emotional and intellectual and conscious and superconscious faculties, but obviously people are different. And what does the next thing is what is the healthy version? We'll call it the healthy template of a human psyche. What is an unhealthy version? What happens when let's say healthy lungs become unhealthy lungs? What happens when healthy emotions become unhealthy emotions? In context of what we're speaking about this evening, healthy attraction has now moved to unhealthy attraction because of the lack. So to understand the healthy version, the, and, and then, and the non-healthy, and then what are the interventions? Interventions are gonna to have to include the best that's out there on all levels, not just the Hasidic philosophy, the best that's out there in uh, different therapeutic approaches, different spiritual systems, is gonna require research and, and creating models that will be tested and experimented, you know, and refined. I think Hasidus can be the real backdrop because Hasidus has a very sophisticated and comprehensive, and I would even say many years, time-tested because it goes back thousands of years. And what you want the product to be is a formula that can be used perhaps first as piloted or tested in certain controlled environments by, let's say, practitioners that are receptive to it, demonstrate the results, and slowly continue, you know, maybe find some university or some psych psychological um, brain, brain uh, the think tank where they're ready to test it on basically medical students or psychology students or psychiatric students. Here are some formulas that we will provide for you. 
you know, with obviously all the factors that have to be taken into account, take those results and refine it into what I would call a model that integrates the best of psychology with the foundation and the comprehensive Who, who determines the, the best of psychology? Well, that's we'll, the best of psychology. will need to be by individuals that we trust that, that look at what's out there and see what works, what's consistent with the Hasidic insights into the soul. And there'll probably be disagreements as well. Some will say this is uh, good, this is not so good. So that needs to be determined. Right. We've already so, heard a slight uh, disagreement on the psychedelic between Divi and you, so it's good. That's fine. There's nothing. I, I think the more opinions and the, the strong opinion, you want that because you want to get the best result. Now, it's unfair, Rabbi Jacobson, because you can reach these experiences you said through learning. So, yeah, but not, <laughs> but first of all, not everybody can. And not, and, and there are people that will need more than just learning. They will need, they will need. I, I'm not denying that. Now, are you familiar with the term MVP? What's MVP? Minimum viable product. So, what's the minimum meaning? So when someone has an idea, so it's this grand idea, right? I thought it was the most valuable player. Okay. Also, say minimum viable product. So it's basically in order to test a concept, what, what's the minimum needed in order to test that, that this can work? Yeah. So is it, a, is it a course that's delivered to no, existing I, I, I practitioners? Think, I, I think that the next step, look, let's talk financials even. I think the next step before you start, people start investing is to create a budget for what would be the next step to move this forward. I think the next step sounds to me would be to get to bring certain, not many people, but a small brain trust together that has some top psychological people, that has top Hasidic in, uh, in scholars, that has people who have a certain interest, bring the right ones in there and brainstorm to come away with a game plan. And there's gonna need to be a budget to do that then a budget for the next step, what are we gonna create? You probably wanna create a workable module, a workable with, with real case studies and real target audiences that let's say address trauma, maybe address maybe not the hardest situations, maybe deal with things that are a little milder and come away with the results and say, here's what we have tried. And we will use, of course, test, uh, tried and tested methods. And you wanna come away with saying, okay, Here's what has resulted from it. I don't. I would not look for a tremendous investment until you have that in place. And as an investor, I'd want to see right. proof, of con proof of concept. Right, and that MVP extent. is what allows you to prove the concept that you have a, right. a great idea. So I'll, you shouldn't have honest, to we, make an order of 100 need, million iPhones to know that a customer yeah, wants an we, iPhone. We would, we would probably need more discussion to really uh, hone down on that and define it. I can't say, you know, to be honest, I could say what I know. I'm not going to. I'm not going to just jump into an area I've not thought through properly. You know, this needs to be thought through, but it's completely doable. The challenge is going to be how do you measure results? You know, you suddenly see somebody healed. How do you measure results? There are ways. Is, well, you yeah, could pick something ways. simple like. Divi, how 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 are results measured? Well, you could pick world? something simple like generalized anxiety, right? That would lend itself well to Hasidic concepts. Okay. You create a manual, and you run a study either yep. in an existing treatment center with 20 participants and you use a number of standardized assessment scales. Right, I mean, when- Ellie, Ellie, I'll tell you something. Just the mere fact that you'll have in a room, uh, let's say a top psychologist that we all agree really gets it, you know? 
and gets a real dose of Hasidic thought. Let's say I would present something really, and you, you, you can't imagine what kind of magic can come from that. Just that that cross-pollination, that itself can be mind-blowing. That's right here. That's what's happening. That's happening yeah. right here. Yeah, that, that's why I'm very, I'm very excited about this. I'm, I'm very glad that Divi joined and participated. I, I really believe that this is the, the, the final frontier in many ways. It's from some of the messages I got from the last one. You know, I was asking questions more, but it seemed like certain people were, were um, getting from it, like this idea that, yeah, it's totally possible, like a Hasidic modality that like exists, like here it is. Boom, that can um, that can change uh, that can that can change the way treatment happens. And based on this conversation, there's a part of me that feels, for many oh, reasons, no. that it's necessary. I, I I know my heart without even question that if you talk, I take three Hasidic melodies, like Shamil, maybe a nigan from the Alter Rebbe, and a few songs that have really penetrating, powerful effect. And you create a controlled environment where you're dealing with someone that is whatever they're dealing with, and you use the songs like you would use psychedelics. I have no question in my mind that it could reach in a deeper place into the soul and psyche that I'm, I'm not even able to even imagine. I know it has that power, but I don't think it's ever really been tested properly in the right environment, with the right conditions, and of course, with other elements that create that, uh, that environment. So, I mean, just throwing out thought, you know. Right. The, you yeah. talk about ideas in different places have similar thoughts. So in the, um, in, in the ayahuasca community, right, which has a lot of, you know, religious overtones and things like that, there's this idea of ikaros. And ikaros are songs, tunes, that came to, that come to the shamans after years of doing whatever they're doing, asceticism and practices and living in the forest and eating a certain diet and not having sex and all these other things. And these songs come to them. And then when they're guiding people, the, the guiding is actually primarily through song. Interestingly enough. I, I'm telling you, it's so exciting to me because all the stories that I read from the Friedrich Rebbe and from the Rebbes, the songs, the anecdotes, I mean, I could see them all coming to life if you put them in that type of applic applicable uh, form, not just as a nice story that inspires you, that you really turn it into a whole experience. I, I just, I, 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 the more we talk, the more excited. I mean, it's like beginning of a big fabrengen here. Right? Yeah, just for perspective, I was actually thinking about this when I went into the treatment center, like, gee, I wonder if they ever just sing together. So I was asking the girls, they have like karaoke, right? But they don't, have like the concept of singing like with intention um something that can open the heart so the idea is like you're saying it's not just hasidic concepts it's hasidic practice and different modalities within hasidic practice that could be part of it take take the song shamil the three stages of firstly the nostalgia of a more beautiful life the melancholy of being now trapped and the hope for a brighter future through song, through story. It's, it's tremendous. You can, you, you can transport people even through like a type of a, like a thought, ex thought experiment. Mm -hmm. You can transport people through their thoughts and through the visualizations and imagery and sound, all the senses at work. 
Oh, come on. And uh, entering into super conscious states? We have to, I've, uh, I feel we have right to figure now out I'm, how to I'm, test I'm, this. I feel now I'm, I'm, I'm about to get high from this whole thing. <laughs> there's, there's a recovery center. Um, I only know about them. I don't know if they're effective or good or anything. I'm not vouching for them. I only know them because um, I was interviewing someone and he did work. He was like uh, design work and he happened to do for many different companies. And one of them was uh, uh, a group called Recovery Unplugged and it caught my eye. So I was paying attention to that work that he did. So I don't know it from the, from the work they do, but I just pulled up their website, recoveryunplugged.com. And it says over there, Recovery Unplugged provides hope, healing, and peace of mind to those affected by alcohol and drug addiction using the power of music. So it's, yeah, it's good. So saying, incorporating some of these things and seeing how it can match with some of the best that's out there, not, not taking it over. And there, there could be an opportunity to run some studies and see whether or not it has the effect. There are, when someone gets generalized anxiety, they get a, a diagnosis. I got a diagnosis about 12 or 13 years ago, general anxiety disorder. And then I did another test where I didn't get it. And it wasn't, you know, someone putting a finger in the wind. They have metrics. I don't know quite how they do it, but I, I took a test. MN, MNPI2, does that make sense to me? Yeah, there are a bunch of scales. It's not hard to pick. It just depends on your research team, really. Right. right. You use some of those. And, okay. And Ellie, and, and, and Ellie, even the Torah Shalom that we uh, have. Uh, yes, you know, discussed at length. A whole thing about just sexuality itself and dealing with what that is, the sexual energy and so on. By the way, it is possible to publish qualitative studies, which can, you know, which can be, have an, a sample size of like one. So there are ways to move forward. Interesting. Okay, so I'm wondering if In the other words, there's continue online or offline, there's... but something has to happen tangible from it, because otherwise then this whole conversation is spiritual. And then one of the, that, that it has, has to come into the real world. One of my favorite stories is someone went to the, I think it was Alter Eber or something and said to him that he feels bad that when he gives tzedakah, he doesn't do it with his full like sincerity. And he said, okay, he said, you may not give with full sincerity, but the person who's eating <laughs> is eating with full sincerity. <laughs> right? So sometimes like the, the action Good. is most important. So, okay, Absolutely. we'll see if, We'll see if this can somehow turn into something uh, specific and tangible and grounded in the real world from uh, our conversation. Not simply talking, but something that a song that someone can listen to. Experience. Okay. I don't know listen to a song that someone can experience. Thank you, Robert Jacobson, once again for this conversation. Divi, thank you so much. Uh, for I just want to acknowledge our psychologist. Uh, there's a psychologist in the audience saying effect size is a big concern. Right. I think uh, like a case study or qualitative study is looking more at themes and a quantitative study requires a specific sample size. So we'd probably want to show an effect size, but it would also be interesting to explore from a qualitative angle. Anyway, thank you so much. This was lots of fun. It seems to me that there are probably people who are listening that could be useful this conversation. So as it uh, progresses and well, I, I guess that's the first step, the first step, that's the MVP, Robert Jacobs. The first step is proving something in some way. I mean, you can't move forward unless you can prove it to investors and in the, um, in a clinical setting, right? To clinicians, they're not going to buy in unless there's a study because that's, 
that's how everything works in that world. You can't just say, I think it works well, or it works nice for me. I saw it in a book. They have to be able to look, here's this person, here's their name, here's the age, here's the, you know what happened, maybe not name. And I'm seeing the, the change. Thanks all for attending. Have a great night. I look forward great to seeing night. you. Thank goes. you very much. A pleasure to be with you guys. Likewise. Good night, everybody. Well, there you have it. Another episode of the In Search of More podcast. I very much enjoyed the conversation. It's more than a conversation. And there's a reason we call it the In Search of More podcast is that these are very much searches for me that I'm exploring myself and seeing where it goes. And each one kind of evolves um, into somewhere else. So we'll see where this evolves. I have some ideas. Stay tuned. I'm really excited about uh, what we've started uncovering here and feeling back. And hopefully over the next few weeks and months, uh, we'll have something cool to share with all of you. So thanks for joining me on this journey. Please like, share, subscribe, whatever it, is, whatever it is that gets more people to know about this. Because the more people who know, the easier it is to do what I'm trying to do here. So thank you so much and have an awesome rest of your day.